Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. We got a special solo guest for you today, but it is a great conversation. And I can't tell you how happy I am to have Robert Meyer Burnett on Word Balloon. You may not know the name, but you might know the work, especially if you're a fan of special edition DVDs, the bonus features we all hunt for as cinephiles, whether it's uh, technical stuff or uh, behind-the-scenes facts about writing or acting. Uh, Rob has been a part of so many great DVD collections. I'm talking about stuff like The Lord of the Rings, the Tron 25th Anniversary, Fantasia, the Fantasia Legacy, the concert feature, the secret origins of X-Men. He was on the X-Men Brian Singer DVDs. Superman Returns, he did The Requiem for Krypton, a three-hour Making Superman Returns feature. That's just the tip of the iceberg. A ton of work on Star Trek, so much so that I'm going to leave my usual studio and continue this in a special room that I've got set up. Hang on a second. There, that's better. Rob is a massive Star Trek fan, and if you're a Star Trek fan, you're in for a treat, because along with this uh, DVD bonus feature talk, uh, we're going to talk about Rob's association with Star Trek. From his 1999 very funny movie, Free Enterprise, uh, that featured uh, William Shatner, Eric McCormick from Will and Grace, a very, very funny movie ahead of its time, as you'll hear in the conversation, and I would agree with that estimation. Um, he is also part of a big event going on right now in uh, Star Trek fan films, Star Trek Axanar. It's not fair to call it a fan film. There's a 20-minute documentary that is part of the story that's up on YouTube called The Prelude to Axanar. You've got to see it, and you'll appreciate the amount of professional work by top video and film technicians and actors. It's a great story that takes place before the original series, about 20 years before Kirk's time. And uh, it's a great idea, and it's really going to be a fantastic thing. I am so behind this, uh, both the crowdfunding effort that has just over a week left to go. And uh, when you hear Rob's uh, case for Star Trek Axanar, I think you're going to be uh, very impressed. And especially if you see this documentary, Prelude to Axanar, 20 minutes long, great visual effects, great starship and Klingon battle scenes. It's going to blow your mind. Rob is the director of Star Trek Axanar, and it's a pleasure to talk to him about that. And, of course, a million other things about Star Trek, because he's one of us. He's, he's a huge Trek fan. Uh, he makes a lot of appearances on various Trek podcasts. He is a regular on Collider Heroes, a very interesting uh, podcast that we talk about as well. And I can't tell you enough about how excited I am to have this conversation with Rob Meyer Burnett on today's Word Balloon. It's brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. If uh, you like Word Balloon, like I always say, the best thing you can do is tell a friend that uh, you like this show and they might like it, too. And I'm hoping to get a lot of uh, welcome new uh, Trek fans that may not be aware of Word Balloon. It's always amazing about the amount of podcasts that are out there that you don't become aware of until you're hitting the face with it. And uh, I'm certainly hoping that uh, we'll get some new listeners uh, to enjoy the show. Uh, Rob is a huge comic book fan, I might add. And uh, he's going to talk a lot, and you'll tell through the conversation about uh, some of his favorite comics over the years. So uh, that was great. But back to the League of Word Balloon listeners. Uh, thank you for your support via Patreon. If you want to help uh, support the show, you can go to wordballoon.com. There's a tab right there that has a couple videos and shows you different ways that you can support the show. If you can spare a dollar a month, that's terrific. Thank you for the hundreds of you that are already supporting Word Balloon. I really do appreciate it. It makes it easier for me to go to conventions, make the connections of uh, people like Rob and others that you're going to be hearing in the weeks ahead. 
uh, that I wouldn't normally get to see if I was just sitting around in Chicago. It's a lot easier when you talk to these people face-to-face and give them a card and say, hey, come on my podcast. Uh, tonight's show is a perfect example of that. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the Cincy Comic Con, September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. And this is going to be a really fun weekend. It's my kind of con. It's a very intimate con on the one hand, but it's also a star-studded con. Of course, the host of Cincy Comic Con is Tony Moore, the co-creator of The Walking Dead. Such wonderful work on uh, books like Fear Agent and Battle Pope, and of course his excellent Marvel work. Tony is going to be there with uh, Rick Remender and Mike Hawthorne to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Fear Agent. That's just one of the great features of Cincy Comic-Con. If you're a Fables fan, Bill Willingham, Matt Sturgis, and Chris Robertson are going to be on a writer's panel talking about the excellent series that's coming to a close this year, Fables, the wonderful Vertigo series. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Chris Burnham is going to be there. Sean Crystal, Matthew Clark, Jeremy Bastian, Ryan Brown, Adam and Comfort Love, Evan Dorkin, Sean Dove, Ming Doyle, Sarah Dyer, Ray Fox, Andrew Heath, Kyle Holtz, Mark Kidwell, Kevin McGuire, great Justice League international artist, Mike Marisi and Mike Norton, Phil Noto, Jeff Parker, Eric Powell, the great goon creator, Andy Price from My Little Pony fame, Derek Robertson, uh, Johnny Ryan, Mike Schultz, Chris Sprouse, Dave Wachter, Ben Templesmith. I think it's a great show, and I hope you won't miss it. I'll be down there as well, moderating panels. As I always do, uh, it's a great opportunity to get to interview some people I don't normally get to interview. The panels are terrific, and I'm very pleased to help uh, put them together with the organizers. But it's really a fantastic end-of-the-summer kind of show. Cincy Comic-Con is happening September 12th and 13th at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. For more details, visit their website, CincyComicCon.com. All right, without further ado, I'm going to leave the bridge now and uh, beam down to my uh, usual uh, site to uh, speak with Rob Meyer Burnett, uh, a real exciting Trek conversation that I hope you enjoy today on Word Balloon. I got to tell you, one of the best surprises at San Diego Comic-Con was uh, meeting our next guest because I've been a fan of his work since seeing Free Enterprise years ago. One of the best uh, Star Trek-related movies, and any Star Trek fan that hasn't seen it, I truly, as I told you, Rob, I run and tell them, you've got to see this movie, <laughs> because it, it's, it's great. No, it's a love letter to the series and the franchise, and it just helped William Shatner uh, get comfortable in his Adam West phase of his career. And I don't know which of them did it first, but that's just one of the things this guy is famous for. Uh, the special features on the Next Generation DVDs, this is the guy that put those together. And most importantly, his current project, Star Trek Axanar, uh, we're going to talk about that. There's something online that you've got to see if you haven't already. But it's such a pleasure to welcome Rob Meyer Burnett on, uh, on Word Balloon. Thank you, Rob. Wow. I, I, after that introduction, thank you very much. I mean, that was, uh, you were too generous. Am I, am I, is it Rob Meyer Burnett or Rob Burnett Meyer? You can, no, it's Rob. It's, here's the thing. I mean, I just go by Rob Burnett, but the reason that I use my middle name professionally, like I'm credited, there's another Rob Burnett in Hollywood who was sure. David Letterman's producer and head, oh, of, yeah. head of Worldwide Pants. He also was the producer of the TV series Ed from a few years back. Yeah. Oh, my God. So yeah. I would, when I get credited, I can't get credited as Rob Burnett or Robert Burnett because he does. So I use my middle name. I started using my middle name professionally so people would delineate. It's like the difference between sure. P.T. Anderson and Paul Anderson, the director. It's kind of like that. 
Absolutely. Or even in the Star Trek world, there's David Mack, the Star Trek novelist, and Word Balloon fans are well aware of David Mack, the comic book writer and artist. Sure. To Kabuki, so, right? Absolutely. Very nice for 10 points. Excellent. We move on to the Silver Age. <laughs> <laughs> what gold key artist wrote, uh, drew Star Trek uh, comics? Um, oh, my God. Are, are, and are you that deep, Rob? Where you, like, can you do like stuff like that as well? I can. I mean, you know, the gold key, there's, <laughs> there's uh, the Italian... The the the, yes! uh, the Italian yeah the Italian artist who drew the gold key stuff the the one with the giant uh, uh, Audrey like from Little Shop of Horrors plant <laughs> that I always love that issue with the, the flames colors. with the flames coming out of the the shuttle bay of the uh, of the Enterprise oh yeah you know and I mean this was up and down the line for gold key back in the day too the the covers were just always so spectacular and as great as you know some of those early star trek paperbacks uh you know that we'd get like fan fiction of and stuff the new voyages and all that stuff where you're just like man where is this going to take us to the blish novels back the novelization oh the, back the james the- blish the original covers of the blish blish adaptations were gorgeous yeah man yeah, and even even uh, the highlights of the animated series of uh, of those uh, the Alan Dean Foster adaptations. Yeah, the logs, the Star Trek logs. So, those are I'm, I'm ha- those are great too. I mean, I love those. <laughs> I'm half doing this, Rob, to show you my cred because and that I'm not just a guy that's like, oh, you know, I really like Star Trek. It's the one with the ears, right? You know. <laughs> well, you know, it's, what's really interesting to me is, is how you know we've got next year's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, but for me and, and what I've told people is that literally my entire life, Star Trek has been growing and changing and evolving. Because when I was a kid, I, my mom says I started watching the original series when I was like three or four or something. I don't know how I knew it was on. Yeah, but then the animated series came on in 73 and 74. Then there was the motion picture, the motion picture series, Next Generation in 87, Deep Space Nine in 93. You know, it just goes on. And now we've, we've got Star Trek Beyond coming out next year. So... And my fandom has been such where, I mean, hell, I remember when the photo novels were all we had. and getting those, Yes, get, those were awesome. The 12, yeah, before there was videotape, you know, it was getting those photo novels were the best. You know, IDW, and it's funny, I was talking to somebody from there recently. I thought John Byrne was going to do something similar where he was going to tell new stories, but take photographs of the original series. And do, you know, that's like, I don't know if you know, but it's called like Fumetti. Oh, well, that's the, well he has been doing it. Oh, he has been doing it. Oh, very cool. See, I, I wasn't paying attention. There you go. Oh, yeah. They're great. Are they good? They're really oh, you know, good. His his comics have been great. I loved, in particular, the Leonard McCoy Frontier Doctor uh, miniseries. That was but great. All stuff- and the, the Gary Seven miniseries yep. he did. Yep. Absolutely, man. No, no. It's it's really cool. And no, they. I have to say they've had really credible people you know, doing, like, great stuff. And that's the great thing about, I think, comic adaptations today of licensed stuff. There's just more care, and they really do get good writers and artists to, you know, show the properties in their best light, and you really do get great stories. I'm looking forward to the Green Lantern Star Trek crossover. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm down with that. I, I love Jeff John's run on Green Lantern, and I was, you know, I was a big fan of, like, Blackest Night. I'm, I'm like, what sure, a man. cool thing to do a zombie story in the DC universe with superheroes. <laughs> oh, and I didn't even realize it was going to be uh, zombies uh, that they were both facing. That's cool. Yeah, well, it was in Blackest Night. I mean, I mean, sure. But I love, yeah. I love. I don't think it is in the oh, okay. Green Lantern Star Trek miniseries. But 
I, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's, I like the Star Trek X-Men crossover, you know, the, Oh yeah. <laughs> that was great. Uh, Michael Jan Freeman's novel, the Star Trek yeah, X-Men novel. Absolutely. So, Hilarious. But yeah, and I think it, it's funny because I would consider myself an OG, an original geek. And I, I've <laughs> sort of, you know, I think free enterprise was a little bit before its time. I wish we'd almost made it five years later because it's sort of forgotten now. And the 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 geeks that we uh, show in that movie are now sort of de rigueur. It's the world, the geek singularity happened, and now yes. the entire world, I mean, when you have the Avengers and Fat Furious 7 and Jurassic World are now the biggest grossing films of all time, we live in the, the, the geek world. There's no such thing as a geek anymore. Geek is now mainstream. Indeed. You know, and I, that was the panel, one of the panels I saw you on. Uh, the weekend of Comic-Con and everything, and, and I agree with the panel, and I think you're right. It is that time. Man, I, and you know, I'm really glad we're, we're spending a second on Free Enterprise because you're, there's so many great comic book references in there. You're shooting at Golden Apple, and, uh, you know, I mean, everyone, and, and you're right because back then it was that stereotype of, oh, my God, hot girl in a comic store. What the hell's going on? Oh, I know, and now, I mean, you go to Comic-Con, and wherever you turn, there's a hot girl dressed in, you know, not just, it's no longer just Sailor Moon outfits. Now it's, it's everyone. You can see. Well, and it's, and it's every type of, every type of man, every type of woman, and that's awesome, man. You know, I mean, it's, that's really great. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, it is universal. No, it really is. And, and I think it, it's almost, in a way, though, I, I was telling a friend of mine last night that, I've sort of reached a maybe an existential crisis in my life in that all of these things have been with me my whole life. I mean, I've been I don't have children, so I haven't been able to watch the inexorable march of time before my eyes as my kids grow up. I've just been interested in the same stuff my entire life, unchanging. And it's there's just more of it. You know, I, I look at this hot toys Millennium Falcon cockpit for the six scale action figures. That's perfect. A perfect recreation i'm like oh my god if i had that when i was 12 years old i would have been the happiest kid in the world and the thing is i'm still looking at a millennium falcon toy that i want and i was in 1978 when the kenner millennium falcon came out nothing has changed since i was 10 (laughs) nothing and and i think in a way that's that's sort of strange i mean it's it's in a way like I started collecting. I've been buying pre-recorded media. I've been buying movies first on VHS, then on Laserdisc, then on DVD, and now Blu-ray for 35 years. I mean, I've rebought Star Wars how many times in every yeah, different man. format? Yeah, and and it's it's like, but if I've only I'm on the downside of my life. So I you know I I, I own I, <laughs> I own like 2,000 Blu-rays, which is about 4,000 hours more if you include TV series. And if I've only got 25 years left, if I die, 28 years left, if I die, if I'm 75, do I want to spend the rest of my life watching these movies that I've accumulated? <laughs> like, am I going to do that? Or, or my hot toys figures that are in boxes? Like, when am I going to take them out and enjoy them? Are they going to stay in boxes? It's, it's like, I, I don't, I almost, I, I, I was almost ready to just sell all of it. Well, I, if it's any comfort, because I'm slightly older than you, I think it happens at that age, because it was as I was, I am 50, as I was approaching 50, I had that same, like, 
<laughs> crisis of conscience where it's like – and it really was a, about the time – I guess it might have been a couple years earlier because it was when HD DVDs and Blu-rays were still competing. Right. And I, and I, and I was one of those absolutely every Tuesday, what's coming out on DVD? Well, I've got to get it. Me too. And, I still am that way. Well, you know, I, it was – like I said, it was the Blu-ray era, the beginning of the Blu-ray era. I really st- stopped for a minute, and I'm like, all right, how many more times am I going to do this? And frankly, especially given – this is one thing I wanted to ask you. Given your own background in making the special features for Next Generation, um, that's really the deal breaker or, or deal maker for me is if it has exceptional documentaries that I really want to see. That's what makes me still want to buy stuff. Otherwise – I have like that's my adult version of cutting the cord as young people have with cable and just stuck with streaming media. My thing is, well, I'm not going to buy any more hard movies unless they also include documentaries that I, I really can't see anywhere else. Well, you know, I, I agree. And, you know, I've been making DVD and uh, Blu-ray documentaries since 1999. And, you know, I worked on the first two X-Men movies. I worked on Lord yeah. of the Rings and. Yeah, whip them out, Rob. Absolutely. Tell tell people more of your resume, because seriously, yeah, I want like people to know the breadth of your. Oh well, your, I mean, you know, and, and I was like, stuff. I I was lucky, and there was very few people that were afforded the opportunity of being embedded with a production. And for instance, I was in New Zealand for fourteen months on Chronicles of Narnia, and and before that, sporadically on Lord of the Rings, and then I was wow. covering Superman Returns for the entire wow. year. So basically, there are very few people. Other than making movies, I was on the set of these $200 million movies getting made, and I'm sticking a camera in everyone's face, and I could ask them whatever I wanted. So it was like going back to college for my doctorate uh, and and watching movies get made right there at ground zero and then making documentaries. I mean, I made a three-hour documentary on the making of Superman Returns, and whether you like that film or not, I took an approach that there was no – it was all shot while the movie was being made. So it's not after the fact. It's, it's, it's a you are there uh, experience. And, you know, after having done that, I wanted to, uh, I made one movie that didn't do well financially, but I never got an opportunity to direct again, a, a feature at least. And I feel like I know so much about making films that I can finally really apply it on what I'm going to do with Axanar. Absolutely, man. And by all means, let's talk about Axanar, but hopefully we will get back because I want to... No, I mean, we can go. I'll talk forever. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's interesting in that you... you, you, uh, The the real... What I was really getting to is that it's unfortunate, but the era of DVD and Blu-ray special features is coming to an end. Exactly. And I wonder, is there room, and you're more on the inside, so I don't know what kind of point of view, especially given how many that you've made... Is there a, a, a platform where we might see nothing but documentaries about movies? I mean, when you think of how many great things from you know guys like uh, Bogdanovich talking to John Ford and that that wonderful like little piece of film that he did to the things that are being made as this is being phased out. I mean, there's just so much there, and Turner can only spend so much time doing it. I I, I think there's an audience for these things. I truly do. Well, I think that. It's being taken over, like, for instance, a really interesting movie just came out that my friend John Schnepp made called The Death of Superman Lives What Happened, which is an examination of Tim Burton's aborted Superman Lives film. With Nicolas Cage. With Nicolas Cage as Superman, and it's a fascinating examination. I mean, he interviewed Tim Burton, 
Uh, he interviewed Colleen Atwood, the costume designer, and many of the artists that were involved in the pre-production of that movie that never happened. And it's it's fascinating. Yes. There's been fan-made films about Friday the, the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, the Psycho franchise, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Um, there was a great uh, making of done by a British filmmaker on uh, named Paul. I'm I'm blanking on his last name, but about American Werewolf in London. Oh, fantastic! And, and so the studios. The, the problem is. When DVDs first came out, they were they became people were buying everything that came out because your your dollar, the entertainment value you got for your buck was so extreme because you'd get these special features and and everybody was just buying everything and and DVD became a hugely profitable marketplace for the studios. They were making uh, just an incredible amount of money that they had never made before in home video. And Absolutely. unfortunately, though, after a while, the studios understood that these special features did not necessarily translate to more money. And what really killed me was on my Superman Returns documentary, Walmart wanted – they wanted uh, – uh, like a single disc movie only version of Superman Returns to get yep. people to come in as a loss leader, and they're like it's for sale for eight ninety nine. So I had made this uh, the special edition of Superman Returns, the two disc set, and unfortunately, when the sales numbers came in, the two disc set was outsold by the movie only edition eight to two. So only Jeez. twenty percent of the people who bought Superman Returns on DVD bought my special edition that had my documentary on it, and that was that. You know, numbers don't lie, and and unfortunately, you, the the segment of people that are really interested in special features are twenty percent or less of the population. And if that's the case, what is the incentive for studios to spend money making special features anymore? And the answer to that is there isn't one. Uh, and unless you have what's happening now with home, the home video market is as studios become less and less interested in releasing their own catalog titles, there's the rise of companies like Twilight Time or Shout or Scream Factory, Olive, mm-hmm. Criterion, that are, and Criterion's always been there, but they're, they're sort right. of filling that niche market and releasing smaller. They're doing like 3,000 print runs of movies like Zardoz or fright night or things like that but unfortunately those companies don't have the budgets to create full-blown special editions of these movies so it's sort of a it's a catch-22 and i also think that there's a little fatigue i think all movies are sort of made the same way and once you've watched the special features on say the top 25 biggest fantasy science fiction and horror films that there's not more really to learn and and as and as our post production processes are now so con, contingent on computers, it's it's guys or girls sitting in front of a, a screen making visual effects, and it's not like the early days of Cinefix magazine where you could see pictures of them building a giant model of Con Am twenty seven from Outland, where you could watch you know the the show scan process being used to put. Sean Connery in a gunfight in the on IO, you know that all that stuff was was really cool, you know, and you get it. And Absolutely. nowadays, there's just there isn't that. Oh, CG dinosaurs, okay, but we know how that's done. That's true. Well, you know, I guess for me, and forgive me if if, if you had more, please continue because you're the master here. Well, no, I mean, it. I would say that you know there are <laughs> like I'll give you another example. 
the Hobbit extended editions that have recently come out. I worked on the first two Lord of the Rings movies, and a lot of oh, my I have those. my team and my boss, uh, my old boss on Lord of the Rings, continued on and did the Hobbit extended editions and did all those special features. Those okay. special features are amazing. They're they're shot in HD. They're beautifully made, and when you look at them. There's just such joy in the in the making of those movies, and nobody's paying attention to those special features. When we did the Lord of the Rings special features when they came out, people were like, "The special features are as good as the movie." Absolutely, were, man. They were they were lauded, and and we got all kinds of awards, and people were talking about them. Now the special features come out for the Hobbit, and they're just as good, if not much much better. But nobody cares. Wow. And and it it, it like I I buy those Hobbit discs and. There's such care. Uh, those those special features were assembled with such care, and because they were there the whole time, the footage is amazing. The interaction with the actors, and it's really amazing stuff. But other than say the digital bits or High Def Digest or Blu-ray.com, nobody's even paying attention to special features anymore. Wow, man! Our oh. Star Trek: The Next Generation Blu-rays, no one bought them. I worked. Oh. I worked my ass off on those. Me and Roger Lay Jr. It was basically just the two of us and CBS was like, yeah, just give us 15 minutes on each. And we're like, oh no. Oh no. You know, and, and we, uh, uh, that was a labor of love for three years, getting as many people as we could. But then you find out that like season six, for instance, that has great special features sold, get this, 5,000 copies worldwide. Crazy. I mean, that's nothing. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus Christ, yeah, man. It, that's terrible. You know, you do that, and you're like, wow, you, you did all of that work. You tracked down those people, the hundreds of hours of interviews and the thousands of hours we spent editing all that material together and the four years we worked on the project. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly proud of the Next Generation documentaries and everything that we were able to accomplish, like getting uh, Measure of a Man redone as a – this the first extended edition of a Star Trek episode that's finished in HD and it aired in a movie theater. I mean, it had its world premiere in in, in a movie theater at the Fathom event. Wow, that's the that's the one where Data's on trial. Yeah, for, yeah, is second section or not? Yeah, because yeah. Melinda Snodgrass, the writer, kept the original cut. She had a VHS tape of the original edit of the episode. It, it ran long because it was so talky, and we got that tape back from her and reconstructed the episode based on that tape, because it was the only only existing copy of the editor's original cut of the episode. And wow. so now it exists in full HD, and it had its world premiere in movie theaters, which was, to my mind, an epic win. Hell yeah. Now, and that's on the Blu-ray of the second season. Yeah, and not only that, in addition to that, uh, I was the on-camera host of the 25th anniversary cast reunion of Next Generation. So it was me sitting in a semicircle with Patrick Stewart and Michael Dorn and Jonathan Frakes. I mean, it was amazing. It was, and I moderated discussion between them. That's also on the second season. And it's it, is that is that from Fan Expo from Toronto or? Yeah, it was from Calgary. Okay. Oh, it was the Calgary show. Yeah, okay. we were up in Calgary, and then we did it. We did a since they were all up there. We did a special shoot with them in the morning before. They went on stage, and uh, it was great. Oh, my God. No, that's fantastic, man. Well, and you've earned it. I mean, that's the thing. You've put the hours in, man. And I know it's a labor of love for you as we, will, as we get into Star Trek Axanar and everything. Um, 
no, it's uh, this is in the right hands. With, back to free enterprise, like, do you you have no control, obviously, at, at saying, hey, you know, this would probably run great if you put it on Netflix, like you have with Trekkies and some of these other. Right. I know. unfortunately, my former partners, I don't really control. Uh, <sighs> and the problem with free enterprise is we'd have to pony somebody would have to pony up for an HD transfer of the movie, which can cost anywhere. You know, you're looking at fifty thousand dollars to do it right. Oh man, and you, dude. Well, you know, when the crowdfunding's done for Axonar, you know, maybe. Right. Maybe. Right. Although, yeah. Although we're gonna have to go back to that well if we can. Do, you know, it's 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 funny. We're we're almost up to our first stretch goal that will allow us to make the first half an hour of Axonar. Um, but the script is incredible. I'm psyched, man. It's a really very, great script. I, I'm very psyched. Let's get into Axonar for people who don't know. Uh, we will point you to the incredible documentary that you guys made, Prelude to Axanar, right. which is already up on YouTube. It's everywhere, and it is so good. And I saw that, and literally, it blew me away, as I told you. And I mean, and I'm sure I'm not, you know, I'm the, you know, probably hundred thousandth person to tell you that. I'm sure, and hopefully a lot more if you know, as as word goes on. But you are in the midst of a crowdfunding campaign. Star Trek Axanar is an untold story in the original series uh, world. It's not the J.J. Abrams verse, but go on. You, you're you going to tell it better than I can. Well, it, 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 it takes place 21 years before where no man has gone before, which was the second Star Trek pilot. Uh, the first was, of course, The Cage, which was later reused in the first season as the Menagerie Parts 1 and 2. And then where no man has gone, gone before was the second pilot that NBC commissioned. That was the first time you saw William Shatner as Captain Kirk. It actually aired as the third episode of Star Trek when Star Trek was airing in September of 1966. So Mantrap, and what was after Mantrap? I think it was Charlie X. I want to say Charlie X. (laughs) I think. That's fantastic. All right. Um, uh, But I'm not sure. Uh, this is sure, sure fan delight for me, and a, a very atypical interview because I'll be like smiling and laughing all the time because I love this man. I don't talk enough Star Trek. Oh show, well, I, you know. So. And so, well, so what was what was interesting about Axnar? Of course, Axnar was mentioned in Court Martial, and then it was also mentioned in the third season episode, famously in Whom Gods Destroy. And in that episode, we meet a man named Garth of Izar who used to be, he was Captain Kirk's hero. He was the man who explored more planets than than anyone else. He was one of the greatest starship commanders of them all, but he was taught by a race called the Antosians the power of shape-shifting. And something went wrong uh, after that. After he learned that power, it drove him insane. And he was committed to an asylum, which is basically, he's like the Joker, and the asylum he was committed to was Arkham Asylum. You're right. But Absolutely. It was, it was on a planet called Elba 2, and the Enterprise rolls up, and it turns out Garth has taken over this asylum. But at the end of the episode, they help Garth out, and Garth my, Garth's mind is clear, and then he returns back to his noble self. And the, ma- the man who created the whole Axonar project, Alec Peters, was always obsessed with that moment when Garth's mind cleared, and he looked at Kirk and he said, Do I know you, sir? And with such nobility, and Alex, like, I want to know who this guy is. So Alec Peters, who created the whole Axonar project, was obsessed with telling the story of Garth of Izar, but but at his height, before he had his fall from grace. And during the 80s, there was a company called FASA, 
that made a Star Trek role-playing game, which was actually quite excellent. And there was okay. there were two supplements. There was the Four Years' War supplement, and then there was a Return to Axanar supplement. And in it, in these supplements, they described the Four Years' War and the first conflict with the Klingon Empire. Now, this was not canon, of course, but but Alec, obsessed with both the Fassel role-playing game and Garth of Izar, always wanted to sort of tell his version of the Four Years' War. So he got together with Christian Gossett, and Christian Gossett was the creator of a comic series called The Red Star. That was oh, an yes. alternate future history of the Soviet Union that never fell. And yes. yeah, great, great comic. And Christian's an amazingly talented artist and production illustrator for movies. So he and Alec got together and they were going to do a movie about Axanar. They wanted to do a movie about Axanar, but in order to prove their production methodology, they decided as a trial run that they were going to make Prelude to Axanar. And Prelude to Axanar was going to be a documentary based on Band of Brothers, the, the HBO show Band of Brothers. And it was going to be an, a documentary as if it, an in, in-universe documentary, which means it was going to be made as if it came from the 23rd century. <laughs> and, and they were going to interview the major players that participated in the Four Years' War and in within that, we're going to have footage of, of space combat and starships and explain what happened during the Four Years' War. And it would sort of be a dry run for what we would later do with an Axonar feature film, which would not be a documentary, which would be a, a narrative feature film. And they came to me and asked me if I wanted to edit this, not just because I was a Star Trek fan, but also I've been editing documentaries, you know. And so I was a perfect fit to be their editor. And so in May of 2014, first of all, in order to do this, they crowdfunded it. They, they, they put this idea up on, Indie, or on Kickstarter, and they asked for $10,000, and they ended up getting $101,000. That's fantastic. So it, yeah, it allowed them to up their game. They hired, like, Tony Todd, who famously played Worf's brother Kern, and then J.G. Hertzler, who was Martok, and Richard yeah. Hatch, who had played Apollo and Tom Zarek on both iterations of Galactica, and Kate Vernon, who was one of the final five Cylons, and then we brought back Gary Graham to reprise his role of Soval from Enterprise to give the whole thing legitimacy so it would seem Absolutely. real. So, yes. yeah, and they filmed this thing, <laughs> and they got the great Tobias Richter, who's a German visual effects artist. He has a company called The Lightworks, and he did studio-quality visual effects, and we cut it together, and it turned out great. We debuted it at the 2014 uh, San Diego Comic-Con in a movie theater in a packed house. So it was on the big screen and it looked really expensive and it was mixed in 5.1 and it rumbled the theater and people I think were pretty blown away by it. <laughs> and so we put that up online uh, to use that as our, our new Kickstarter video because we wanted to make money to make the Axonar feature film. And um, we put it up, and the f- first thing we were doing, the first, and the people, there's been some confusion about this, but the first Kickstarter campaign was going to allow us to build the infrastructure we would need to make a feature film. We needed a place to shoot it and to build sure. sets, so we found a warehouse that we were going to retrofit with a, a studio floor that w- had sound baffling in it. We were going to do all these things, and... We asked for $100,000. This was last year, last August, and we ended up getting 631000 and change. Fantastic. But none of that was ever earmarked to be used for production. It was only ever used 
for the infrastructure. So, so since then, we've got a warehouse. We've retrofitted it. We've built like Aries Digital to deliver our donor perks, and we are actually building sets. And we haven't had you know a lot of. We can't afford a lot of labor, so the sets are basically being built by a skeleton crew. But we built the bridge. They're building corridors now, Starship corridors. We're building a Klingon bridge, a, a Federation war room, a CIC. I mean, it's 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 amazing what we're doing. And Christian uh, Gossett, who directed Prelude, uh, stepped down as the director of the Axonar feature because he was doing another feature film that, you know, would actually pay him money. And so (laughs) I I had a day job. I mean, I've been editing. I just finished editing a science fiction time travel thriller called Paradox. And I just started a new kidnapping movie called I Know Where Lizzie Is as an editor. So I have a day job. But I stepped into the role of directing the Axonar feature. And we are in the midst right now of an Indiegogo campaign to actually raise money for production. And the budget of the Axonar movie is not, to make the whole movie, the budget is $960,000. And I've joked, we're trying to make a $100 million space epic for 1% of that. Yeah. And, and that would be for a whole two-hour movie. Now, barring that, we've, we've our, our crowdfunding campaign, we've said, okay, if we split it into episodes, because it's four acts, if we do each episode as an act, each episode is going to cost a total of $330,000 because it's more expensive when you stop and start things. So we're okay. about to cross our first stretch goal to that 330000 So I am now working on pre-production on the first at least half an hour of the Axonar feature film. And that's wow. where Axonar is as of right as I speak with you now. That's fantastic. I got to ask about, uh, and this is ridiculous, but the court-martial mention of Axanar, uh, in what context did that happen? That's where Kirk is on trial. Yeah, uh, I believe that it, it, because he received the, the palm leaf uh, participating in the Axanar peace mission, he was there when the, the peace was signed, the armistice was signed between the Klingons and the... Oh, wow. Uh, so Kirk... There's a possibility for a young Kirk to show up in your story, or I would neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> That's a good answer. All right, I respect that. And God, I love that. Whom gods would destroy? If that was that the episode, or yeah, whom gods destroy from the third season? Yeah, yeah, man. No, Lord Garth. No, and even before that, do I know you, sir? That moment of clarity when Kirk is trying to reach him when he's still crazy and Garth becomes Captain Garth again and he's like, Oh, it's a big responsibility and I, I you know, and you bored well, sir, and you know, and he you get this real moment of, oh, I want more of that. And I know there was a a pocketbook of a Garth of Izar story. Yeah, as it well. came out in two thousand three. So was the FASA, um, like, did you guys use, like, info, like Ramirez and some of the characters that you introduced in Prelude to Axanar? No, were they were they... all of those characters, other than Soval uh, and Garth himself, all of them were new. They're all original. Awesome. They're all characters that, that Alec and Christian had come up with. Fantastic. And oh, I think, man, I, I, you know, people have said, why do, I, I think the great, why people respond to Axanar so much and why people love it so much is that because unlike other fan films, because we have such great quality of actors, people believe that those characters in Prelude are real, legitimate Star Trek characters. Hell yeah. They buy them. They, they, they feel like they're, they're canon. They feel real. And that well, is, of course, a great testament to what Christian did as a director and what Alec and Christian did as 
as uh, writers and also the performances of the actors. I mean, it really, it was a joy to work on as the editor because it was so much fun for me. And then I got to, you know, when I first got, I think my big contribution to, in addition to editing, was I, I really shaped the in-universe aspects of, of Prelude. I was like, well, look, I asked Alec and Christian, I'm like, well, who's interviewing them? <laughs> like, I, I literally, it was one of my questions as I was cutting it. I'm like, what is this doc? Who made this documentary in your mind in the 23rd century? Like, who made it? And we didn't, they didn't have answers for me right away. And I said, well, okay, in your first Kickstarter campaign, you have this logo for the Federation Historical Society. It's kind of like a sundial in space. And I was like, yep, I love this logo. And I'm like, maybe the Federation Historical Society is kind of like NPR, you know, made possible by ground by the Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm like, absolutely. You know, what if it's like that? And then I said, well, what if, what if they teamed up with Memory Alpha? You know, that we learned about in Lights of Zatar, another third season episode, and that's the repository of all Federation knowledge. What if the Federation Historical Society's cranking out documentaries all the time, like the History Channel? And I said, okay, when if you're traveling through, if you're going through, you know, warp five, you're going from one planet to another, and you tune into whatever subspace frequency you can get in. Maybe there's the Federation Historical Society channel. <laughs> so we added all that. Like at the beginning of Prelude, I'm like, okay, well, what if, what if the UFP that would, would, would be the overarching or overarching funding organization, what if they have like a network sting, like NBC, <laughs> like do, do, do. And our composer, Alex Bornstein, actually wrote a sting. And I, I put a UFP logo at the front and, I, I got a, a Thomas Maroney, who designs all of our cool patches, designed yeah. the Memory Alpha logo and designed the, the Federation Histor Historical Society logo. So I used those and put them over a star field at the beginning of Prelude. So it gave it even more of an authentic in-universe feel. No question. And then in the deepest <laughs> cut of all, uh, so we had a narrator, and, and I was going to call in a favor – and I was going to have Shatner be the narrator as Admiral Kirk, but that really wouldn't have, it would have, the timeline wouldn't have worked because this documentary takes place like 10 years after the Battle of Axnar, which would have been 10 years before Kirk took command of the Enterprise. So okay. I was like, I was saying to Alec, and I go, who, who should be the narrator? And Alec stops and goes, John Gill should be nice. the narrator. Now, you might ask yourself, who is John Gill? Well, John Gill, according to a list we once did for Sci-Fi Universe magazine, uh, might be one of the great villains of all of Star Trek that nobody remembers. And John Gill was a Federation historian, also Kirk's teacher at the Academy, who went to the planet um, uh, Echos. And uh, Echos has a, a neighboring planet, uh, Zeon. And they were kind of a moribund society. And John Gill is there studying the Ecosian civilization, he decides, you know what, I'm going to jumpstart this culture and I'm going to introduce national socialism from 1930s Germany on Earth to this culture because it was able to turn around a war-weary and beaten down German population after World War I that was paying reparations and their economy sucked. And of course, they became Nazi Germany. And so John Gill introduced Nazism to Echos <laughs> Great and they, idea. Of, they, of course, quickly <laughs> decided their neighboring planet, Zeon, was, was the enemy, and the, the Zeon should be exterminated. And that was detailed in a Star Trek episode called Patterns of Force. 
uh, from the second season. But before John Gill went to that planet, he somehow found time to narrate documentaries for the Federation Historical Society, including Prelude to Axanar. It's awesome, man. It was such an awesome touch. And like you said, the the logo and the fanfare that we get for the UFP, it does. And, and it's so great. I, I've shown it to friends. Uh, I have a smart TV, so I can get YouTube on the big screen. And it blares through the sound system, and they literally jump back. And it's like, what the fuck, man? It's like, what the hell is this? And it's as, as you know, majestic as the Fox prelude as we go into uh, any Star Wars movie. And you're just like, what is about to happen? And then when you see that it's narrated by John Gill, it's like, oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah, that's I mean, what- it really shows. I mean, I can't tell you, <laughs> because Star Trek... While Star Trek had people like Ron Moore and, and Melinda Snodgrass and R- R- Renee Echevarria working on Next Generation, there's never been – it was Star Trek fandom was always frowned upon if you were – up until the fourth season of Enterprise when Berman and Braga stepped back and allowed Manny Cotto to sort of do his thing. Uh, yeah. They didn't want Star Trek fans working on Star Trek shows. What the fuck? Well, I know. It was very strange because they, they were so worried that these shows wouldn't have their own identity. But what they never understood is the main fan base loves when they tied in Star Trek lore and history. I mean, from the time – from the pilot of, of Encounter at Farpoint, the first episode of Next Generation, when Admiral McCoy shows up, but he's never mentioned by name. He's just the Admiral. But, of course, we all know who he was supposed to be. Yep. I mean, that, that that immediately tied Next Generation to the original series. And I think – the difference with Prelude to Axnar is we're all, for the most part, uh, industry veterans that know how to make things for low low budget and really can make quality, uh, very technically savvy and well-done material. But we're also die-hard, I mean, fanatical acolytes of Roddenberry's fictional universe. And that's never happened before in terms at the professional level. You have a lot of fan films like Star Trek great and News and Star Trek Phase 2, which are great yes. New voyages, but they're recreations. You know, they're these nostalgic. Yes. They're not. And I've I've often said what we're trying to do with Axanar is it's it's like when Steven Spielberg made Saving Private Ryan. You know, we've been seeing World War II movies since the end of World War II, and like in the '60s, you get Patton or you get Where Eagles Dare, The Dirty Dozen yep. or The Longest Day or you know Great Escape or something like that. Sure. And then you had Saving Private Ryan roll along, and it's the same war. But it's filmed with modern techniques, and it's it's very different looking than anything that had come before it, and that's um, what made it great. That's the ambition of Axanar. No, yeah, I mean, I we want to make uh, we want to make a, a a a movie that feels like an epic space saga that's clearly set in the Star Trek universe, but we're not going to be slavishly devoted to the way Star Trek looked in fifty years ago. Well, and also, yes, and and that is a fair characterization of Star Trek New Voyages, Star Trek Continues, Phase you know, Phase Two. They're they're great, and I really enjoy watching them and look forward to them whenever they have a new story to tell, or even some of the adaptations they've done. God, the Mind Sifter uh, episode, and I forget which which group of guys did that. That was, that was I, New Voyages, and, and our oh, our sound designer Mark Edward Lewis on Prelude actually directed that episode. Holy shit, that's like. It's it feels like like you just said modern technique being used on a Twilight Zone episode. Well, what's really interesting is that story, Mind Sifter, originally appeared in the very first Star Trek anthology, uh, Star yep. Trek 
uh, the new Voyages that came out in, yep. I think, 1976. It was, there you go, man. I was one of those kids, 12-year-old kids that bought that book when it came out. Absolutely. Yeah, when I went to summer camp, my mom packed that book in my suitcase. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. It's a great story, and it's on YouTube. And people listening should definitely check that out as well. But you got to see Prelude to Axanar. You will be blown away. Uh, the the you know it like just the production values and as you said very much band of brothers uh, it, to me and coming from sports talk radio it reminded me of the best ESPN thirty for thirties or sports centuries the action scenes are epic and I think that's why we all trust you with what you guys are doing well yeah and you and can actually yeah we want to see this happen we want this movie to happen have you as well. seen the Vulcan scene that I directed. I did, and I was going to get to that. I thought it was important. We've Currently, our Indiegogo campaign is running to fund the feature. And you can go to SaveTheFederation.com or KlingonVictory.com, depending on who your vo- who, who, whose <laughs> side you want to win. But it'll, it'll take you to the Axonar Indiegogo page. And I uh, thought it was important, now that I've inherited the director's job, that we... Yes. We make a scene from the Axonar feature film because the thing about Prelude, it was just one actor sitting in a chair against, yeah. you know, against green screen. And I, I, I thought it was important that we show, like, what would an Axonar film feel like? So I picked a scene that was probably the antithesis of what everybody expected, which is just a walk and talk. It's, it's Ambassador Saval talking with Vulcan Minister Talera about Vulcan. The, the Vulcan ministers have just voted because of the war, to secede from the Federation. And they just voted, but the vote has yet to be ratified. And Soval is very upset about this, obviously, as much as an upset uh, Vulcan can be upset, because he's come... It, it, it takes The Axonar story takes place 80 years after the end of Enterprise, but Soval, sort of now at the end of his career, has really come to respect humanity and what they were able to do, and he sure. thinks this vote by the ministers is a cowardly, stupid thing to do, and that Vulcan should stand behind uh, the humans and the Federation. And so it's a conversation between him and this minister about how he sort of feels about the whole thing. And, and you know, it was all, again, it was shot, Tobias, we designed, I, I wanted to combine the animated series, Mount Soleil from Star Trek Three. Uh, there's there's yes. new Vulcan that- ships from Enterprise, and you know, it's sort of to me a culmination of all the different Star Trek eras in one little scene. If if you know your Trek, and it's just this walk and talk, and and you know, I understand it's it's an entirely virtual environment, but you know, I think when people there's stuff in the air, and it's just such a. Oh, I thought yeah. that Tobias did an amazing job with the visual effects. It was really fun to plan that scene. Dude, I'm telling you, those visual effects are breathtaking. You do see Mount Salea, and it's it's Vulcan. I trust you, dude. Yeah. I do. I, seriously. And, and it was funny because I almost assumed, because I haven't been watching all of the um, notebooks that you, you and Alec have been doing, I didn't realize that you were taking over fully as director. I thought you were maybe like first unit director or something. Oh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm taking over in, entirely. I've taken over. Ah. And that was sort of my first, you know, that was the first scene I directed. And it was really, we did it so quickly. Um, but, I, you know, I was for the most part happy with the results. I, I, I think, you know, we'll change it around a little bit. But because there, no, there is no scene that comes before or after. So I don't know what the look of the movie is yet. I don't in terms of like how are we going to. Is it going to be more contrasty, less contrasty? Where I'm okay. talking, talking about that with Milton Santiago, my my uh, director of photography, who also shot Prelude, 
And this, I will say this though, the script, the Axanar script is amazing. I believe like it's, I, it's one of the I'm best sorry. Star Trek scripts I've ever read, actually. Well, and, and that's why I truly believe if people see the documentary, which, as you say, are people sitting, you know, with a green screen and there, there really isn't, you know, but, but the visual effects are amazing. The detail that is there, the characterization is there. Everyone is on their A game. I mean, you know, J.G. Hertzler, Hatch. Uh, Kate Vernon, uh, everybody, Gary Graham, as you say, Alec is a really credible uh, Captain Garth. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, I mean, that's the great thing is, yeah, I mean, no, I buy Alec as Garth of Izar. I'm like, this is great. And also knowing the timeline, and that was going to be one of my questions was, like, when the documentary was made, I assumed it was still pre-Where No Man Has Gone Before. Yeah, it takes, it's actually about 10 years before. So it's 10 years after the events described in the documentary and it's like I, I assumed if I had a, if I thought about this, I would have made it, you know, I would have had a thing at the beginning that said on the 10th anniversary of the Battle of Axanar, come revisit with the people that were actually there, you know, the heroes of the Federation well, and, and notorious Klingon warlord Karn. <laughs> well, and I know that you're one of the things that you're making too is uh, a Blu-ray of is it is it just the first hour of Axanar? Is our first half hour? Is that what you're? Uh, the DVD or the Blu-ray that is being uh, as one of the premiums on the current Indiegogo campaign? Well, we would like – no, we, I, I mean I think our, 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 our idea was it was going to be the whole movie, but we're going to have to so – with our crowd, look, our crowdfunding campaign has 10 more days to go, and who knows yes. what will happen? Who knows how much – but we right now we only have – we're only going to get enough money from this Indiegogo campaign to make the first half an hour of the movie. Right. Because we need nine hundred and sixty thousand, but we're still gonna. If we only make the first half an hour, we're still gonna. Like I would love to get enough money to make the first hour because there's a natural break point in the script. And okay. if we did the first hour, I think we wouldn't have any problem crowdfunding the the remainder of the movie because it's so cool. But that's great, man. Yeah, Go on. I Go really on. wish we could get the whole movie because it would it would be cheaper to make. And it would be much more gratifying for people to finally see it. And next year is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, and we'd like to have it out before then. Wow. Yeah, man, I'm hoping. I'm really glad that Paramount is being cool about this, too, because it, it, this whole period from Captain April, uh, Robert April, to, through Christopher Pike, before Kirk ever takes command, is just so... I think rich in, in history and we could really, it would be great to see the original Federation Romulan war. I mean, you know, that period from captain Archer, wherever enterprise left off to, you know, the original series and stuff there, there are decades to, to be explored in mind. And that's why your project is so great. And I'm thrilled to see Garth of Isar. It makes me think of Bob Wesley from uh, the M five uh, episode of the original season, and wouldn't it be great to see a Bob Wesley episode? Or and now I'm blanking on his name. It was the corrupt captain, Captain Stacy, right? Who goes to the with the Yangs and the Cones, right? And and Captain you know, Tracy, Ron Tracy, Trace, Tra yeah, Tracy. Thank you, man. Yeah, exactly. That's a guy. Or even uh, Merrick, who wasn't really a starship captain and washed out and stuff. But that's the thing. There are these like little walkthrough characters that, oh, man, you know, they've explored in the novels. They've explored in the comics. And it would really be great to see them explored in um, short video or long video. And, and I just think the, the possibilities are endless. And that's why when you guys start with Garth, it's like, hell yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think so, too. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, for me, it literally is to direct a Star Trek movie, a lifelong dream come true. It is the realization awesome. of, a, of a childhood. 
ever since I went and saw Star Trek The Motion Picture when I was 12, I mean, I was like, I would want to grow up and make a Star Trek movie. And, and that, I thought the closest I would ever come would be working with Shatner on Free Enterprise. But now, you know, I'm really trying to make an in-universe uh, canon. I mean, it'll, it'll never be considered canon unless we make it so good that it, it's, it's picked up for home video release by CBS or Paramount. But, God, hopeful. You know, yeah, <laughs> well, here's I, that's, that's the thing. But still, it's the closest I'm ever going to come to realizing a childhood dream. Well, and, you know, I wonder, did you look at what uh, Straczynski did with uh, that Babylon 5 after, um, and now I'm blanking on what the uh, the follow-up show was, uh, uh, I can't remember. Uh, Crusade. Crus- yeah. Yeah, Crusade. That post-Crusade, it was like Babylon 5, the, the middle years or hidden years. Yeah, I watched all that, so I love Babylon 5. Oh, there you go. Well, and me too. And I, and I mean, you know, that's the thing. I really felt like, again, with virtual uh, set limitations. They told two really credible stories yeah. that any Babylon 5 fan would absolutely love. And no lie, man. And seriously, I, I, I really do. I love the scene that you've done. And and truly, pe- all people are going to have to do is watch this stuff, and they're going to be like, oh, no, this is good. These guys do the, – they are industry people. They absolutely know what they're doing. And, I mean, honestly, I'm so psyched for this, and I want to see it through. And I really hope that, you know, you, you get full funding for the entire two hours because – it's a great opportunity. Well, it's and funny. I, and I mean, I would, I would, I would it. almost say I'd love to release the script so people could read it. To, they get all fired up about it. But then, on the other hand, it's like, wait, I'd rather have to see the movie. No, I think you honestly, man. The, the characters you tease, God, Tony Todd as as Admiral Ramirez, and the way that you position in the documentary how he kind of assumes command of Starfleet and and is like kind of the lead commander that's kind of, you know, dictating how they're going to battle the Klingons. Right. All that's great. The gravitas that Richard Hatch brings as, as the Klingon leader and stuff. I mean, everybody, as I started to say, you know, J.G. Hertzler and Kate Vernon, totally credible in their roles. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's like you said, it feels like canon. This absolutely feels like uncharted Star Trek territory that we've only heard whispers about in these little mentions in the original series or whatever iterations you guys are like touching on and throwing at us because even the old d5s isn't that from you you mentioned i think that when the klingons come out with the d5s i know that was like from the animated series and then i remember core in deep space nine kind of making a passing remark about yeah yeah that's lovely man that's and even the ship designs like are you guys the ships look great, and they are designs of ships. These aren't Constitution-class enterprises. You'll see the occasional shuttle, but a lot of the big ships and everything, these are new designs. Yeah, and well, we took them- a cue. I mean, uh, whether you like it or not, I, I'm not a fan of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek reboots, but the beginnings are canon. And, like, this, this, the USS Kelvin, and then we see a lot of ships that we figured are older sh- ships, too, uh, it, around Starfleet headquarters, so we we took a a, a, a cue from the J.J. Abrams 2009 Star Trek, and then we put our own design spin and extrapolated on things, and so we did have to come up because you don't get to see a lot of other starships from the era before the Cage. We've never really seen those before, right. not on screen. And J.J. Abrams Star Trek 09 showed us a lot of ships that had probably been around for a while, and the Sea with the Kelvin, all that was canon now. So yes. we took a cue from, from the design of those, and they were also inspired by the old Franz Joseph technical manual from 75 that had the, Absolutely. the scout, the destroyer, and the dreadnought, and the tug. <laughs> so we had, wasn't, that great, wasn't that great getting that as a kid, if we could just side note that for a oh, second? Oh, it was the greatest that. thing ever. That and the blueprints <laughs> came out at the same time, the Enterprise blueprints. They're the greatest things 
they made my childhood. I poured over those things. I, I can't even tell Me you. Too, man. I hear you, man. That's awesome. Go on. So man. that's where the ship designs came from. <laughs> Alec, Alec and Tobias and um, Sean Tarangio came up with the idea and the design of the Ares. And then Tobias realized that, and then they came up with all the other ships as well. The the, the carriers and the uh, there's all it's great. The ships are great. The ship designs feel again, they go yes. a long way. They're new ships you've never seen before, but they feel like they're canon. They feel like they're from the Star Trek universe. We just hadn't seen them before yet. And the battle scenes, like I said, that are in the documentary are epic, and that's why I am very content and know that we are in for a hell of a ride when you guys are you know cooking with the actual movie. Yeah. Oh, the movie's it's, so great. I'm 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 psyched, man. No, this is this is wonderful. And we're releasing this on Friday, uh, for people that might be listening beyond the first day of release. So it's probably just over a week, maybe inside of a week. So again, repeat the uh the two uh places that'll take you to the indie uh, go go uh, Well website. if you're interested you can go to savethefederation dot com or <laughs> Klingonvictory.com. <laughs> depending That's on your leanings. That's fantastic, man. No, I this is this is really uh, such a great project, and I and I really I can't I can't gush enough about how much I love it. And and like I've said as well, Free Enterprise too, man. I mean, Free Enterprise is just such a funny movie. And you you know you're right. As as time has gone on, what was it ninety nine? The Free Enterprise came. Yeah, out? it came out coincidentally. It came out June fourth, nineteen ninety nine, which was the anniversary of Star Trek two. Came out June fourth, nineteen eighty two. Outstanding. So uh, yeah, it, it, and, and what was it, what was heartbreaking about Free Enterprise was, for a year before it came out, we were on the festival circuit. We won all kinds of awards, and it played like gangbusters. And then our distributor that picked it up didn't really have any money to do any kind of advertising, so it opened without much fanfare, and it kind of came and went. But we got great reviews in the New York Times and the L.A. Times, and Variety and the Hollywood Reporter loved it. And then when it came out, it just kind of died a quick and Painful death, and not a lot of people saw it. But And the last time it was released on home video, Anchor Bay put out my uh, extended director's cut, the five-year mission extended edition, which is out of print. But if you get it, it's a great, it's a great DVD to have. So Ooh, I'm going to have to like look before I release this, and if it's like on eBay, grab it before somebody else does or something. Yeah, exactly. Shit. Because I, I can't remember if I saw it first. Because, you know, things like Trekkies didn't have a huge – you know, theatrical releases. Well. No, but and Paramount I know, I mean, put it out, so it had a big life in the ancillary markets. Well, that's true, and and I know I saw Free Enterprise on cable. Yeah, it, it did play cable. And and you know, I mean, God, there's always like Eddie and the Cruisers. You know, really found its audience on cable, and you know, past examples like that. I'm I'm bummed, man, because I, no lie, again, I'm not gushing because you're on. It's a really funny movie, and people who love. I'm trying to think of like. You know, even Kevin Smith's movies aren't quite the same, or even, like, Fanboys, I like the movie Fanboys. I think it's fun, but it, it doesn't hold a candle to Free Enterprise. I, I really think you guys did it better, where it was the combination of truly love for these characters. Yeah, Phil Lamar is one of your guys in the crew of uh, the nerds and stuff, and I mean, it's it, it was just it's so obvious. Eric McCormick from Will and Grace, excellent as the lead. I can't remember who played you. A guy named Rafer Weigel, who is now a uh, a newscaster in St. Louis. Holy shit! And I, and we talked about this because I told you I'm from Chicago. That's Tim Weigel's son. Yes. And I had no idea that that's what he had. You know that he, that was him. Oh, he was Holy an. Shit. You know, I'll tell you what's what was what I thought was really funny. Well, it wasn't so funny at the time, but when. 
we opened Free Enterprise in Chicago as well because we figured that Rafer being Tim Weigel's son would we would do really well in Chicago. Yeah, for for people who don't know, because you know Warbling goes worldwide, thankfully. Uh, uh, you know, Tim Weigel was a big ABC uh, sportscaster who really was beloved and um, really like you know covered all the major sport teams. Was really a Chicago celebrity in that way that they make fun of it in Anchorman. But and I'm sure it's the case in most major cities and stuff. I mean, the guys who do the local news, they really are kind of like the media celebrities of every city. Sure. And certainly, and certainly in Chicago, being as big as it is, yeah, even more so. So go on. Well, please. when we got to Chicago, we did a lot of press, and I found a lot of there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of people that figured Rafer had somehow achieved success and was able to do a movie because he was Tim Weigel's son. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't know who the fuck Tim Weigel was, man. I mean, I, I, that part was really difficult to cast. And it wasn't just because he was playing a loosely uh, a version of me. It's, it's that it was a hard part to nail. You had to believe on one hand this guy was an uber geek, but on the other hand he could still get into girls' pants. And yes, it was a collection of swingers and and any you know fanboy movie you could. Yeah, that's of. what it was. It was really that's what we thought of. Swingers was a, a huge inspiration for us, and that was everybody either wanted to come in and play it as a suave debonair man about town or as an uber geek. And Rafer really had this sort of winsome quality where he was able to skirt that line and do it really well. And he was the only actor I saw that even came close. And I figured. You know, we'd go to Chicago, but there's a lot of people that that we didn't do well in Chicago, which I thought was it really actually hurt us because if it if Chicago had gone like gangbusters, the distributor would have opened it up in a lot of other cities across the United States, and the movie might have done a lot better than it did. But the Chicago audience and the reception was chilly, to say the least. That sucks, man. And you know, unfortunately, coming from Chicago broadcasting, I know there is a bit of resentment sometimes in the broadcast circles because we have a lot of legacy broadcasters that their parents were already established stars. Right. We even currently, uh, there's a woman who works for the NBC channel locally, Lauren Jiggets. Her father was Dan Jiggets. Dan was a longtime CBS sportscaster, did a lot of Fox stuff as well, former Chicago Bear. And But Lauren had the chops. And also there's Jennifer Weigel, of course, Tim's daughter, right. who was a very successful broadcaster. So I can I, – I know and, – and really that's just the tip of the iceberg. I can think of like four or five other you know examples locally. And you know, I mean personally, I don't give a shit. It's uh, – <laughs> You know, I've I've been able to work in broadcasting. Everything's fine. But uh, wow, I didn't realize because I remember hearing Rafer's name. I might have even heard him on the radio a few times, uh, just in passing or whatever. It, I never put two and two together that he played you in, in Free Enterprise, and he truly was great in Free Enterprise. Yeah, he, he really he, he was. And you know, he 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 went on and he was like in the Jenny McCarthy show, and he he acted. I'll tell you a funny story about that. When we played at the AFI, the movie had its American debut at the AFI Film Festival, wow. and it won two awards. It won Best Screenplay and Best Film, the New Directions Award, and one of the jurors was Emilio Estevez, <laughs> and, and somehow Emilio Estevez became the biggest free enterprise fan, and he tracked me down, and he called me up, and he's like, I got to show this movie to my dad and my brother, and, and he said, but mostly, I also, I loved your lead actor, 
I would love to give him a part in this new movie I'm making called Rated X, which was all about the Mitchell brothers making porn films in San Francisco in the 70s when they made like yes. Behind the Green Door with Marilyn Chambers. And they gave him a part. They cast Rafer in Rated X because – and Emilio Estevez directed it, and he did it because he liked Rafer. And I right. thought, what a great dude to like call me up and give my lead actor a part. That, That's awesome. Yeah, that was great. I mean that was such a vote of – confidence no question and yeah you know honestly i i've uh, i've had a soft spot for emilio estevez he's taken his mighty duck money and and put him into a bunch of passion projects and stuff and you know made a bunch of films that he really wanted to make which is you know that's the dream is you know yeah cash the checks and then do what you want to do with the money absolutely absolutely as you're doing your it's although unfortunately well you're you're cashing the funding checks to fund the movie so i guess that's the good news yeah i mean and that's the whole thing uh, there's a lot of jealousy and there's been a lot of ire in certain look science in trek circles really yeah science fiction fan circles are like anyone else there's yeah, yeah. Anybody, and there's all this jealousy and backbiting and to me i'm like we're all parking our cars in the same fan film garage we, hell yeah man but there's a lot of animosity out there especially cuz we've Aww. raised a lot of money and I mean, if people knew that, like, you know, my my 15 year old Honda blew up during production, and now I'm <laughs> now I'm rolling a, a used Hyundai instead, and it, it, somebody said that we used our money to buy cars and stuff, I'm like, oh really? Where would that be? Where would those cars be? You know, and it's it's like Jesus. for me, I want to put everything into the movie. We don't want to, we we want to make a the great. We're trying to make a hundred million dollar movie for one percent of that budget, which means we need every. Every one of those $960,000 we're trying to raise, we need to make the movie. So we're not interested in, in spending that money elsewhere. We want to make Axanar. We want to make the coolest independent Star Trek film ever made. It's going to be a classic of, of – of, it's going to be better made than anything you'd ever seen before at our level. I'm I'm really psyched, man, and I'm and I'm just I do understand, and I do believe me. Even in the small little comic book podcasting circle, there's backbiting, and everyone could be a little territorial and you know not happy with what's happening in their neighbor's lawn across the street as opposed to their own lawn. And it's like whatever, man. Well, you know, there's and so I, much I, of us now. I mean, with the, with with everybody and their brother doing a geek podcast, the entire <laughs> world has become geeks. I mean, well, that's yeah. Well, tell me, you know, seriously, Rob, do you guys, I mean, beyond doing the XNR updates, are you a regular on any, on any podcasts and stuff? Well, I've been, uh, you know, I've been asked a lot. I've been on a show called Collider Heroes. It okay. used to be AMC, the, the, the movie chain, the theater chain, but it's Collider, the internet site Collider. Mm-hmm. And they were acquired, and I do, I've been, on, I guess, like on, like five times, I think. And it's a show that's hosted by John Schnepp, who made The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened. And, oh, okay. and John Campion, we talk about comic book movies. Oh, that's great. And then we do, Alec and I do the official Axonar podcast. We're almost, I think we're going to do our 30th podcast soon. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, so I do that. And then I've been on a lot of podcasts lately. But, you know, everyone's always after me to start a um, my own podcast. But I'm like, really? Does the world well, need yet another? <laughs> I've, actually, I, I, I've actually been approached by a publisher to write my geek memoirs. Congratulations, that's fantastic. Which, man. you know, a, a li- as a lifelong geek and having watched the progression, I mean, I worked in home videos since I was 13 and it was 1980 and I worked as a Laserdisc retailer and I've really, I've done so many, I've been a lifelong geek and I've made it, I've been a professional geek as well. So I sort of have a really interesting, 
I guess, perspective on all of this. And I would love to sort of write my, my geek memoirs. That's amazing, man. And I understand. I mean, in a small way, Discovery Channel did a show a couple of years ago called Prophets of Science Fiction. Right. And, I remember uh, that. And, on the Science Channel, and I was a talking head on three episodes, and it just it, – I was so blown away that these producers approached me, and it was because of Word Balloon. Right. And that's – and as much as I agree with you that we the world does not need another geek podcast, by the same token, I do think that there are a very few that I really do think are exceptional and are, are good interviewers. They know what they're doing. They can handle and run a good conversation. Frankly, I do think that it's still enough of a frontier that – I don't think um, the Kevin Smiths and the, and the Nerdists, Chris Hardwick's of the world, and I and I really do. I've met them both, and they're very nice people. I don't want this to sound like I'm, you know, backbiting in any way, but I don't think they've cornered the market. And I really do think that my analogy is always like back when there were periodical monthly magazines, and there was a real newsstand that people actively still pursued in America. I'm like, there's Time Magazine, there's U.S. News, there's Newsweek. They're all on the same shelf. They all have different perspectives. We all even interview the same people and still end up with different interesting conversations because we're different people, and it's just going to end up being different. And also coming from the world of sports talk radio where I spent you know, 15 years, with every new uh, event, there's, there's an opportunity for a new discussion and different perspective. It seems like people can't get enough of it, and the, the, the idea is get to the quality programs out there. And honestly, like you and Alec do a great job with access and stuff. I'm interested in hearing the Collider Heroes show because I really did. I like John's uh, Death of Superman Lives documentary. I thought it was terrific. I, yeah, I, it, it really was. And what I what I find really interesting about about when I was a kid watching Star Trek, it, there was a you know a five, six, seven, eight. I was obsessed with anything science fiction or fantasy or, or, or horror because of Star Trek. It started with Star Trek and the Twilight Zone. But I would watch. Any, like there was on Channel 11 in Seattle where I grew up, there was sci fi theater. It was on two o'clock on Sunday. And I would watch, I mean, I was planted in front of the TV and there was no internet and, you know, Starlog magazine hadn't sure. even come out yet. So Starlog, awesome. There was yes. never any, there wasn't any way to find out what these things were. And I remember in the wake of Star Wars coming out, all of these, there was a book called Sci Fi Now by a guy named Alan Frank. And it was a, pictorial history of the sci-fi film and i got it when i was i remember that yeah i got it when i was like 10 or 11 and i'm like (laughs) i have to see every single movie that's in this book and it became sort of my quest and 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 it was i didn't care if movies were black and white i didn't care if they were foreign i would, would watch everything i mean i devoured it and i don't think unfortunately now Uh, that's not the case. If people aren't immediately entertained by something, they'll just turn it off and turn on something else. And, and there wasn't like before, whatever it was, that was all you were going to get. And you never knew if you were going to see it again. So uh, my mind was like a sponge, just soaking this material up. And the same was true of, I'd have to go read books. I'd have to go read reference material. And now it's, you don't need any of that. People just, oh, I'll go to Wikipedia and, oh, UFO is a show made by Jerry Anderson. It predated since <laughs> 1999 and the girls had purple hair, whatever. And no, but nobody has, nobody understands what it was like to actually watch those programs at the time. And, you know, UFO, I saw, I love UFO, but it was such a dark, fatalistic show. Absolutely. And, and now when you try and show people things that are 50 years old, they have a real hard time getting past their, like, 
I can't, people are like, oh, the effects are cheesy or the clothes are funny looking and why do they have purple hair? And I'm like, all right, uh, because I would put myself in a mentality, even as a kid, I'm like, I, I got, I understood if I watched, say, the adaptation of Things to Come or I watched Day the Earth Stood Still. I mean, I knew that, okay, this is black and white. It was made 25 years before I was alive. So I get that it's going to be different. I get that culture was different then. And I would just allow that. That was part of my mindset, but I would still go in and watch it and try and put myself in, in, in the audience's frame of mind. Of like, what, what was it like to watch this movie at the time it came out? And why is it important? And why is it in, in, in sci-fi now? Why did it endure all of this time? And, and I don't think we have that anymore. I think well, that I think that the the geek culture is woefully missing their their history. I completely agree in some cases, but I always think there is one young hipster that speaks our language as older fans. Oh, I agree. No, there and, is because Tarantino did that a lot already, and he's not that much younger than us. But that's the thing because I would even point to Space 1999 that very much looks like the 70s sci-fi aesthetic of the day. And and at times, I even remember, I loved it when it was originally on, kind of got, it was like Batman 66, where you first like it, then you think it sucks, or you're, embar- or you're like, yeah, I don't want to watch that anymore. And then you rediscover it. And when they release the Blu-rays now, I watch it, and it really is like a paperback from the 70s come to life. Oh, the, the you know, the first season of Space 1999 is so dark and weird. Yes. And- Yes. I mean, you watch it now, and it's—I mean, it's sometimes it's glacially paced, but I love it. No, I agree. I, the second you know, season, not so much, but the first season is really interesting. Oh, absolutely, and yeah, I haven't even bought that second season uh, Blu-ray, but yeah, no, that's—I was talking about like the first season in particular, and um, I was going to say it's funny you say that it is—it's glacially paced. Mission Impossible. You know, God, when we were kids, seemed like it was running on a stopwatch constantly. And you watch it now, and poor Greg Morris is bent over the same safe trying to crack it for like 20 minutes of the hour. Oh, yeah. And, and with that Lalo Schifrin just like drum percussion behind him. And you're just like, shit, man, open the box already. Sidney Bristow would be like humping the, you know, the bad guys by now. And that's, I mean, that's the problem. But then you go back, and I remember when I was a kid, on when it first played on PBS in the United States, when I saw The Prisoner I, I in the late Prisoner. 70s, early 80s, and I was like, I'd, again, a show I'd read about that I'd never seen, and it started airing on PBS, and I was blown away by it. I mean, I'm like, yeah. the, the philosophical implications in the show, and I'd started reading a lot of... Another thing that I don't know if people do as much of is I was reading classic science fiction hand-in-hand with seeing Star Wars the first time, and watching Mm -hmm. Star Trek reruns. I mean, I was reading Dune and Childhood's End and all of these things, these great works of sci-fi literature, Stranger in a Strange Land, and and, and then the comic renaissance of the 80s, starting with, like, first comics putting out American Flag, which I thought was, you know, that blew me away. And and, My guy Chaykin, absolutely. You know, Mike Grell doing Star Slayer, and then John Ostrander doing Grimjack with Timothy Truman. And, I mean, all that stuff was... And then, of course, the... DC Marvel Renaissance, uh, th- that was amazing. Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then, I mean, it was it was an amazing time. And then, of course, the, the period of time from, again, after Star Wars came out to about 1985, when you had everything, the summer of 82, in one summer, you got everything from Conan the Barbarian and the Road Warrior and Tron and The Thing and Poltergeist and Star Trek II and Blade Runner. And 
all of these and these things came out in the same summer and they were all these seminal unbelievable visions that were all good there was never any this sucks everything was amazing and it was a it was a it was a very heady time to to be growing up and 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 sort of moving from adolescence into adulthood while all this stuff was going on it was hugely influential I agree. And in fact, in the comics further, um, those 80-page giant and 100-page super spectaculars from the 70s that had reprints of 40s and 50s comics. Oh, yeah. You know, you had those alongside the brand new stories that were the lead feature in one of those books. And then you'd have a bunch of reprints from the 50s and 60s. And like you said, you appreciated the Silver Age and the Golden Age as much as you did the modern era. Um, but again, I think, and that's, and it goes back to what I was saying too about like, there has to be like a platform for, uh, special features. I really think this is where podcasts and, you know, these kinds of short films that people end up posting on YouTube, this is where we can inform the younger uninformed generations and say, no, this is cool and this is why. And, and again, you get the right people behind them and stuff. I, I really think that there's, you know, a way to teach. And also there is a small segment. I mean, I know it anecdotally from people coming up to me at comic conventions and stuff. Cause I ask that question constantly. We seem to have this new influx of uh, comic book readers that are getting into the image books and aren't DC and Marvel guys don't really, you know, know Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee by name, see him in their cameos in the movies, but they don't care really that much about the history. And I, I've asked like younger people than us. And I'm like, you know, one, one woman in particular, she runs the bleeding cool comic website. And I'm like, you know, you were just teach her, her previous job was teaching uh, university kids. And I'm like, do they give a shit about like the history? And she goes, some of them do. She goes, I'd say like two or three out of 10. She goes, no, it's not everybody. But she goes, there's still one or two in my class that'll be like, oh yeah, that's, uh, you know, I heard about Chris Claremont's X-Men. I want to read that. Is it good? You know, and things like that. And like you say, they might be, oh, this is too wordy from a comic book standpoint or the aesthetics of a 50s, 60s, or 70s sci-fi movie, a, pre, a pre-Star Wars, you know, Logan's Run. I think isn't Logan's Run kind of like the last great pre-Star Wars science fiction? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Logan's Run, uh, for me, I saw Logan, what it was for me, in terms of my love of movies, my real love of movies, my parents took me to the movies. Jaws was 75, and I was 8. Right. And I, that was, right. it just that blew me away. And cool. then and the next year, in 76, was Logan's Run. That was unbelievable. You know, again, I, yes. my mom took me, and I, I couldn't believe it. And then in 77, Star Wars came out and literally changed the world. Yes. Um, and that was amazing. That whole thing was amazing. And, and living through that, and also... You go back to comics, I remember that there was the secret origins of Marvel superheroes. The books. The books. Yeah. And the first the book books. that had like yeah. Thor and Fantastic Four. And I remember reading those, and I, I was a Justice League of America guy. I was a DC guy. But because of those, um, that book, I got into Marvel Comics. I loved that book. I love the secret origins of – and those were – Sort of the, the Kirby and Stanley, you know, issues and oh yeah, Ditko, absolutely, man, and Ditko, right? I mean, I love that stuff, and and it was, again, it was the kind of thing where you discover it, and there was no bias. Like I didn't, if something didn't engage me right away, I continued on with it because it was, it was, there was not a lot of stuff there, and I wanted to see what it was about. Like, where was this going? What was happening? What was it all about? And and where was I going to go with it? And um loved it. I mean, it was just a great time. And now it's, it's funny to me because if you asked me 10 years ago, if there would be Avengers movies 
that would come out that would be supported by standalone Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Ant-Man, Ant Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. I would have said, no fucking way is there ever going to be an Ant-Man movie, and much less would I go and see it and love it. No. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and now we live in that world. We live in, in a world where, I mean, my God, at the end of this year, we're getting the 24th James Bond movie. You know, the last James Bond movie was the most financially successful Bond film ever, and we're getting a new Star Wars movie where we're going to see Han Luke and Leia, and they're going to actually take into account the 30 years that have gone by. It's like in real time. It's amazing. I completely agree with that. we got to talk Bond for a second, because I know you're a big Bond fan. Um, uh, you, you, we, not a Skyfall fan? Skyfall is a movie where James Bond fails to meet any of his objectives. <laughs> I mean, he, all he does is fail through the whole movie. And, and from the beginning, when he's, he's fighting, I, never, I don't understand Skyfall at all as part of the Bond franchise. Look, everyone likes it because you've got a great villain, but is he a great villain? He's not really doing anything, and you're supposed to believe that his whole plan was to get captured and go to London? And so he could run around and know where Bond... The, the movie is uh, utterly absurd. And then Bond is like, Bond is like, okay, I'll tell you what, M. I'm not going to drop you off the local SAS base where you can be surrounded by British commandos. No, I'm going to take you to my family estate in Scotland where we have absolutely no protection at all except my home alone, booby-trapped house. And Fat Albert Finney, poor God bless him. You know, and then we're going to have the gunship is going to roll in, you know, and blow the shit out of us. I mean, what kind of plan is that, James? <laughs> you know, though, I did like a bit of Bond failing because to me, that was the only interesting thing about the last Pierce Brosnan movie, Die Another Day, was that opening and him getting captured by the North Koreans and getting the shit beat out of him, frankly. And I'm like, that, and, and also just that it, with him starting of, okay, he's been a prisoner for two years. And Emma's like, yeah, fuck you. You know, we, we had to give up too much to get you back. We're not happy with you right now. And really, for me, it goes as soon as, and I love her, and she's gorgeous, as soon as Halle Berry walks out of the, out of the sea, uh, that's where the movie like, takes a nosedive. But up until then, I, like, Die Another Day had me, like, on the edge of my seat. Ultimately, what I thought was that it was an unsatisfying movie because I look, I get updating the Bond franchise. Again, it's also a franchise. Skyfall was the 50th anniversary Bond film. Sure. But I do miss the pleasures of the larger than life. Like I love Spy Who Loved Me, for instance, and I like Goldfinger and I like sort of that larger in life, larger than life era. But we live in the, the, an era of chaos now where they're right, you know, and 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 one man can blow up a whole city these days if that's what they wanted to do. And the Bond films need to reflect that. But I also didn't like that Bond. I, I think that the, the, as much as I, Casino Royale is a great movie, but Quantum of Solace and Skyfall were so dour. And there, was, there wasn't a lot of fun to be had in those movies. I can appreciate that. And, and, you know, and I think Spectre, having read the script and looked at the latest trailer, seems to be more of the same. Okay. Oh, wow. Interesting. And I, well, would, you know, I, I, would, I would like to see, like, here's the thing. To me, the great Spectre story is Thunderball. When sure. they steal two nuclear devices and they hold the West ransom. Spectre has a plan. In the new movie, there really isn't a plan. I mean, they're, trying to, it's, they're kind of trying to pull a Captain America and take over the intelligence gathering apparatus of the 
Western powers, but it's not fun. Okay. You know, and, and <laughs> it's just not, I'm like, all right, well, that's why I think, you know, you look at a movie like Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that to me is a great Bond movie. I agree with you. You know, Absolutely. Hydra was this great organization and, and villainous Robert Redford. That would have been a great Bond foil. But as it were, it worked great as a – I can't wait to see Captain America Civil War. I love Winter yep. Soldier. Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree. And, uh, no, that's – I would say it's my favorite still of all the Marvel Universe movies. And I'm I'm tight with uh, Brian Bendis. A year before it came out, he's like, dude, you're going to shit your pants when Winter Soldier comes out. And, I, and, you know, it was great. He goes, it's everything you love because we're friends and we, we know the – you know, we love Three Days in the Condor and all those great 70s spy movies and – you know, it's no, it's excellent, and that's that is good. Well, let, let's transition to positive movies then, and and say uh, like uh, Netflix Daredevil. Uh, I'm I'm assuming you saw loved it. it. Well, unbelievable! Uh, but I couldn't believe it, and you know, it's interesting. There's all these like highfalutin critics that are getting all down on so many superhero movies, but I'm like, you know what? As somebody who's been reading superhero comics for over 30 years, bring them on. As long as they're all good. Well, and we, but also, we even had to suffer through, and they weren't suffering when we saw them, those movie of the weeks of Doctor Strange and Red Brown as Captain America and, you know, the clunky Marvel 70s Spider-Man and things like that. But we were happy to get it. I mean, now I feel like I'm Dana Carvey on SNL. Well, right. And we loved it. You're right. I mean, these these (laughs) movies were few and far between, and and the Marvel films especially are put together with, such care and thought and foresight that it's what you want from the, the Marvel films could not be in, in better hands than, than bringing on that, that sounding board of, of the Marvel's top creators and under the guidance of Kevin Feige. I mean, it's amazing what we're getting. I completely agree. I just talked to Jeff Loeb and, and Casada about what's coming up and just happened to hit the news cycle of what we've gotten this week as far as Jessica Jones information and Luke Cage information, the next series that are coming out on Netflix, and also the plans for Agent Carter and, uh, and S.H.I.E.L.D. for for next season yeah. on ABC. No, it's I, I really think you know these franchises are in such good hands, and, lo- and they're letting the people that made the stories great – Make make the TV and the movies now. I mean, that's the great thing. These guys are right there in the room. I mean, I, I remember Brian Bettis telling me about sitting with Kenneth Branagh over the first Thor movie. And he's like, God, first of all, I was excited about how much he knew about Thor and really respected the information. He said, but also the willingness to hear from us, you know, please tell me, like, what do I need to know? And they, that it really was more that than the last vestige of the old way, which was that Superman uh, lives and and that's why John's documentary is such a great example of that because it it does kind of benchmark the last time that they made him wrong before we got Blade and the and the era that we've now led ourselves to. Oh no, I I completely agree with that, and it's amazing to see. Um, and I'm glad I'm again I'm glad we live in such a geek renaissance that we're getting. I I, I wish people appreciated what we're getting even more because it is astonishing what Marvel is doing. Uh, you know, seeing the vision, when the vision says, I was born yesterday, I was like, that was one of my favorite moments in modern cinema because it was the realization of my childhood. Yeah. I don't quite know what Marvel's going to do when the Scarlet Witch and Vision hook up, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, but I look forward to them, you know, if that's going to pose a problem or whatever. And further, you know, Ant-Man, it's so funny. It's like I, I, Neil Adams himself said it. He goes, I can't believe we're probably going to see Ant-Man 
walking around either the inside of the Vision or the Winter Soldier's cybernetic arm. They have to be, you know, going in that direction, whether it happens in Civil War or Infinity War. It just seems like it's on the table, and we're going to see that moment. Oh, it's, it's the only thing that I, I can't the, – the most disappointing thing to me about uh, Avengers Age of Ultron was the moment in the Kurt Busiek, uh, George Perez – Avengers run in Avengers 22 when when Ultron takes over and kills millions of people and takes over a European country there's that great comic panel where Thor beats down the door to Ultron's stronghold and all the Avengers that are beat to shit behind him are standing there and Ultron's holding his I mean uh, Thor's holding his hammer and he says Ultron we would have words with thee I thought for sure that was going to be in the movie and it wasn't I was, I was, you know, I was posting on Facebook. I can't wait. It's going to be in the movie. I know it is, and then it wasn't. That's awesome, man. How did you? What did you think of Watchmen? Oh, uh, uh, that I Watchmen is one of my favorite things ever. Sure. And I've read I'm it. I've read it like, but but here's see here's the thing. Watchmen is as much a commentary on the medium of comic books themselves, absolutely, as it is a story. So in slavishly trying to recreate comic book panels like the movie did, like Zack Snyder tried to do, you're sort of missing the point. Now, I think what the, my problem with Watchmen, it was, it was neat to see a lot of that stuff, but I think my problem with Watchmen is encapsulated in the sequence in Vietnam where you see – Dr. Manhattan, a giant Dr. Manhattan, blasting NVA soldiers. Yes. And the Ride of the Valkyries is playing. Well, Ride of the Valkyries, as everybody knows, was famously used in Apocalypse Now. Right. When the Air Cav, Robert Duvall's Air Cav, is attacking the beach <laughs> to get Martin Sheen's PBR boat, you know, up PBR Street Gang up into the Nung River. Well, if you're using that movie, uh, if you're using that piece of music in a, in a Vietnam War sequence, suddenly your movie is now making a pop culture reference to another movie that in itself was using Wagner in an ironic fashion. Yes. And it all becomes muddled. I mean, that sequence is no longer than – it doesn't even belong to that movie anymore. You're now referencing – Another movie, when really it was just okay, it should have created its own identity. Using, you know, Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel over the comedian getting put in the ground. It's like, yeah. so suddenly it's the, go- it's the graduate, because that was the era that the, that ha- I mean, it, it, it all, to me, it was a misstep. I liked what I saw, a lot of what was there. I liked seeing recreations, but it didn't work for me as a movie because it wasn't a cinematic adaptation. It was this sort of hybrid recreation of the, of the movie that also had its head in other pop culture references. And it, it was sort of a weird thing. And I don't think it worked. I don't think it conveyed the storyline. It needed to be more of an adaptation than it was. And less, there needed to be less recreation of the comic book itself. And I like some of it, but I don't think it works. No, I understand that. Well, and the, two things. One, did you like the Sin City movies? No, not really. 
Okay. Um, I thought it worked. See, that's a case where I thought a direct adaptation, and I really think the second movie got short shrift because I just don't think they marketed it right. And if they had told people, if you like the first movie, you're going to be happy with the second movie, and it was more of the same. The only thing I thought was slightly weak was Josh Brolin taking over for Clive Owen, and it just he just didn't have the right rhythm for that character. But beyond that, I I liked them both, and I and I and 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 that's an example I think where the direct really trying to make the the comic scenes come alive. It worked for me. The aesthetic worked for me. Well, yeah, no, I I I, I mean I, I didn't think they were terrible, but again, I would like to have seen they they were they were recreating cinematically what they did on the page, and yeah. I, I would like to have seen a Sin City adaptation that wasn't wasn't that. Like, like, right. wasn't so green screeny and wasn't so like. Tell me those stories on the streets of New York. I hear you, man. You know, no, no, I get but, it. but that's just again. I mean, I I love the yeah, fact it's a that choice. I love that we live in a world where those movies were made. Totally. Well, and then not to pick on Zack Snyder, but I can appreciate people's uh, frustrations with him because I think you're, you're you know certainly three hundred represents that style as well of of kind of trying to bring to life what you've seen on the page. And I wonder if, as much as I've liked the... I'm a little more open-minded and and willing to be, you know, proven wrong when people are like, oh, I don't know about Superman, Batman. I'm like, hey, I'm glad this movie's happening, just like you said. And I'm excited for it, but I have to admit, some some of the scenes in the trailers do look like they're lifted from various, you know, Gary Frank, Jeff Johns books, or whichever artist was, you know, doing... A Jeff Johns story at the moment, and and it's certainly Dark Knight is all over the place, and that's okay. And it seems to be a different take on familiar Dark Knight territory. But I, but yeah, I I don't know. Well, I really like Man of Steel. I mean, I like Man of Steel as a. I looked at it as an Elseworld science fiction story, a different take. I mean, I, I was like, look, in that movie, Superman is not Superman yet. He's found his powers for like a week. You know, True. and then he's facing an extinction level event where 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 these Kryptonians are threatening every person on Earth. And it's not like Superman knows what he's supposed to do. He winds up in this knockdown drag out battle after he destroys one world machine. And it's he, he's not thinking, oh, I have to save these people. He's thinking this guy is going to kill me unless I kill him first. And if I don't kill him first, he's going to exterminate every person on the planet. And all these people like the carnage, and I think it was just genius that Bruce Wayne was there when Metropolis yes. was attacked, and that yes. they've woven this all into the storyline. I think it's genius. I agree. No, I agree. And I wasn't expecting Batman, but I did expect that to be Luther's motivation for the second movie. This is a hero. This is you know, and I, and I think that's. Smart, and you can do a less psychotic Luther, at least on the surface, and be just a more. Hey, I'm just another Earth guy. I'm the Steve Jobs of of our Earth. Uh, you want to trust this alien? Do you see what he did to the, to the city? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just another human, uh, you know. And I and I really think that's because they that's something that John's I think, and also guys like Brian Azzarello did effectively in their recent portrayals of Luther, and also in No Man's Land, the Batman. Uh, epic story from, uh, you know, the turn of 1999 to 2000. Sure, I love No Man's Land. boy. <laughs> I kind of figured, obviously, when you're pulling Busick and Perez out, man, in that moment in all, of all, the Ultron story, I figure I know who I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think that there was, you know, there was a lot of No Man's Land and Dark Knight Rises. There was just, oh, there yeah. was a little too much silliness in Dark Knight Rises that I didn't, 
I, I was like, okay, so the stock market, these guys break into the stock market and you're supposed to believe that it, Bruce Wayne suddenly poor and they turned off his power like that day. Like, come on, man. Anybody has holdings. I, I just, there was too many yes. plot holes in Dark Knight Rises. I love Dark Knight, but, um, and I still, no, the third movie. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, there was just so much in that movie that was not, that was half baked. <laughs> I don't blame you. I, w- I wouldn't disagree. That's, that's, that's terrific, man. No, I, I'm telling you, this is, this is great. And this is what we do. This is what gigs do, man. We, we pick apart the movies, but also I just think we're older and we're also like, Hey, you know, again, like you said, thank God they're making these movies at all. Cause I do think that sometimes the younger audience that's grown up on these and really have, have not enjoyed an era where this stuff wasn't happening. You know, I mean, they can't appreciate it like we can, where it's like the, the good news is if this sucks, like in the examples of the the kind of mixed reviews, you know, reception of Superman Returns, it's like don't worry, wait a couple of years and you'll, it, they'll do it right. They'll fix it. They're only two years away from fixing any bad mistake. Well, you know, I mean, what I appreciate is even if I don't like something, if I can tell, like I love Ong Lee's Hulk. Now, yeah. I understand it's not for everyone, but it's really an interesting take, and it's not stupid. There's something going on there. There's an intelligence going on. And while it's not entirely successful, I, I was amazed that a filmmaker, a world-class filmmaker like Ang Lee, made the Hulk. I agree. And there was some crazy stuff in there. I love seeing the Hulk bounding around the, the desert and throwing tanks around and, and all that. I mean, I thought it was just great. I loved it. And, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I just thought it was great. And, um, you know, things are not... A lot of people didn't like Superman Returns. I mean, I'll always have a soft, soft spot because I worked on it, but I don't think it's entirely successful, you know. But again, it's an interesting take on the character if you don't like it. Oh, yeah. And Brandon Routh was a great Superman and a great Clark Kent, and I'm really happy that he's getting a second chance with being the Atom in uh, the DC television universe. Oh, I mean, so. I think Legends of Tomorrow looks amazing. How crazy yeah. is it they're making that show? No shit. Exactly, with a bunch of sea level superheroes. Unbelievable. And stuff. I mean, I, no, I, I I saw that long extended trailer. I'm like, oh, this is dope. I, Rip Hunter. Uh, it's like, are you kidding me? Fucking Rip, Rip Hunter is going to be on a TV I series. That's fantastic. It. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know that it's just the time. I can't. I, it's incredible. It's the thing is, I I I am a huge fan of Atari Force. Awesome, <laughs> you know, and Jose nice. Luis Garcia Lopez's art in the when they did the the twenty issue series, and I've always joked, I've had meetings at DC, and I'm like, let's bring back Atari Force, and everyone laughs. Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> everyone just makes fun of my love of Atari Force. Well, and you know that Bob Wayne's like Horn Blows at Midnight, the Bad Jack Benny bomb of a movie and stuff. You know, Bob Wayne, it was Time Masters. That's his uh, Horn Blows at Midnight and everything. So. No, there's, there, there are those books that like, oh, you know, I like that book. And it's like, yeah, the company did. Don't worry about it. You know what? There was, there was a crazy – not many people remember this, but it was a direct sale book called Thriller that DC put out. I don't remember that one. Please. It was it – was, it's almost incomprehensible. Back in the 80s. Yeah, I still don't know what it's about, but I love it. What was – and I'm blanking now. What was Ostrander's uh, great series that was crazy kind of – Twilight Zone stuff with uh, oh god the the comedy genius that uh, ran Second City um, he's in he's in the Del Close Del, Del Close. Close yes and I can't remember the name uh, oh god it's on the tip like of my tongue Underworld but it would... or, or I remember that though 
Yeah, and it was pre Vertigo. Right. And I always you know, and I've had I've had John on the show several times and I always give it up to him for that series and shame on me that it's not coming to mind right now. But Thriller sounds kind of like that. And it was that direct market kind of product. Yeah. Whatever. It was really so. weird. I mean Thriller was really weird. And and I you know, there again, back in the day there was that renaissance of comic books. Oh yeah, that led to Vertigo and led to like DC's Piranha Press imprint when they were doing yes. Why I Hate Saturn, the all that stuff and and yeah, the, beautiful the big, stories for ugly children and all that big book of lies and all of those wonderful little short you know form comic stuff and everything that they were doing. I loved all that stuff. I mean, yeah, and, and again, uh, it was it, it just made the world a much more interesting place, and and <laughs> that's that's what I love. You know, I love seeing all of this work that, that people are doing that gets discovered and rediscovered. And, and that's the kind of like, even on the, the Collider Hero show that I'm on, John uh, Schnapp always picks something obscure and, and that we re- revisit the last episode I was on. We talked about metal men. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. And, which, and I, can, which I know is that's kicking around in development. I know John's has been talking about that for nine years. Yeah. So I, I know somewhere there's a metal man, and it's certainly with the I think uh, you know the way the vision you know came out in in the uh, Marvel movies and stuff. I, I think that only helps the metal man cause. Oh, I agree. And and how kick ass was the? I mean, the vision looks so good. I love Paul Bettany as the vision. Perfect. No, it was it was it was flawless. It really was, and it was such a surprise because it's really tough to kind of keep away from all the pre-photography and things that we see now, you know, God, Empire Magazine, even the cover story this, uh, this month is Batman, Superman right. and Affleck and everything. So it's, it, I really did stay away from uh, other than maybe like one or two shots of the vision. And it really was this great surprise. And especially when he came to life and you saw him move and speak and, you know, God, the, the scene with the hammer is just priceless. Oh, uh, again, uh, one of know. the great moments of all time. <laughs> Did um, you know? I'm bummed. I hope, I, and it's weird because I'm conflicted. I know Whedon kind of left on not the, the happiest of circumstances with Marvel. I really do hope we get to see those extra forty minutes. Well, they said that there's deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. I mean, you know, I would hope so too. I, I uh, you know, maybe I hope I hope we do because I can't wait. I mean, I love look. I love both Avengers movies. I don't care. I I, I love I love the character interplay. I love the actors playing. Everyone and and while Avengers: Age of Ultron might not have been perfect, it's still fucking amazing that that movie got made, and I loved it. Oh hell yeah! Oh yeah! Well, it's like Iron Man Two is like one of the not as good Marvel movies, but it's still a a, a good movie, and it's Iron Man, and it's no, and there's a lot to love in it. I just kind of hope that there's more connective tissue and beyond, you know. Because here, back to Star Trek, Nemesis. I man, I got to tell you, Stuart Baird, I kind of want to punch him. Oh, because because to me. It's for people who don't know what we're talking about. Uh, Nemesis was the last Next Generation movie. Um, it seemed to me that Stuart Baird was more intent on making a hundred-minute movie, an hour and forty-minute movie, versus the scene, you know making a good movie. And the shit that he cut out, it's like that all should have been in the movie. Well, he I agree. Really, you know, look, fucked over the fans on that. He uh, <laughs> Stuart Baird never liked Star Trek, and it was a deal. He came in and he saved the second Lara Croft movie because he's an editor and he came into the, and right. the studio owed him a feature to direct. That was the deal. So they gave him Star Trek. And, and, you know, again, Star Trek has never, it's like Leonard Nimoy agreed to come back as Spock if he could direct Star Trek three. And I think Star Trek three, God rest Nimoy's soul, but is a very pedestrian. Uh, it's a very, it, it, it's a very, really? uh, it's not very sophisticated. 
And it's, it's a real it, – it required – Harv Bennett's original story treatment for Star Trek Three was much more interesting. Ooh, I'm going to have to find that. It's That's hard to find. I mean, I had a copy of it. I've never – I keep talking to people about it, but no one else seems to have ever – Read it. I was a friend of mine got it for me from Paramount in, in '83, and it was wow. it was really sophisticated. And um, it, it was the it, in a nutshell, the Klingons were not in it, the Romulans were in it, and when they found the Genesis planet, uh, this planet that materialized out of nowhere, they sent a, a clandestine team to check out the planet. It turns out because the the Matrix was programmed, the Genesis planet was rich in dilithium. So the, the Romulans start mining this dilithium, and then Feral Spock is picking them off one by one. And at the same wow. at the same time, Vulcan. This is where I got the idea, pretty much, for the Vulcan scene in Axanar. Vulcan. Uh, it's set on Vulcan. Sarek is on Vulcan. Vulcan wants to secede from the Federation because the re- revelation that the Genesis device exists has thrown the galaxy into a, 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 a tizzy. The Vulcans wow. think it's monstrous and that this, they can't believe what's going on. And that's why – this is the thing that killed me the most. They just never changed the name. It was a Romulan bird of prey. And when they switched it to Klingons, they never bothered switching the ship because nobody really cared. Oh, we'll just call it a Klingon bird of prey. Well, as we know from Balance of Terror, the Romulans have the p- bird of prey painted on their ship. And then forever after that, Klingons had a bird of prey, which was supposed to be a Romulan ship, and I hated that. That's interesting. Oh, and I and I and I remember from Balance of Terror, I thought there was kind of shared technology between the the Klingons. Well, in the Rom- Enterprise incident, you find out that the first time you ever see a Klingon battle cruiser, interestingly enough, it's being used by Romulans. Right. So that model showed up in the Enterprise incident. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Yes, yes, yes. And, All right. But the, so you you know it, it, it's it, so they shared so in canon you can explain it away. But <laughs> but I always thought it was unfortunate because when I read the story treatment, it was so interesting and it was so really adult oh, and dire. And then the movie that was made is is really you know it's it's a man's first time directing, and and you should never let actors direct um, their the shows that they're in. See, for me, it's the charm of stealing the Enterprise, and God, just those those really great moments leading up to getting to Genesis. I just, for me, that no, I love that. It's great or, stuff. God, but even if you look at it, the humor is so sophomoric. <laughs> well, you know? yeah, the Good Morning Captain and Sproink, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's true. It kind of plays like a bad Scooby Doo when you think about it. That's true. And I, I really wish it had a level of sophistication. I mean, even the Klingons are just like the most cartoonish. You know, yeah. and that portrayal dogged the Klingons until Deep Space Nine. That's true. No, you're right about that. Hey, and, and let me ask you because much like Deep Space Nine ended with the ten part story that was just so epic, and it really is my favorite. Uh, you know, right after the original series and Next Gen, in that order, because that's how we grew up, obviously. Right. Um, but um, I Deep Space Nine really is like my favorite of of the three uh, other uh, you know side side shows. Oh, and, me too. And that, but but Voyager, it bummed me out that I felt they missed an opportunity, especially when we all knew it was the last season. And what I wanted to see happen was at mid-season for them to reach Earth 
and be welcomed kind of with open arms of the Federation, but be like, oh, we're glad you got back. Okay, you're under arrest. You're under arrest. Um, Janeway, you're going to have to explain to us why you had a Borg on board. And, it, and you could set up this kind of cane mutiny Federation inquiry as a, as a you know, kind of framework and tell the backstory of whatever you wanted to do and, and have that be kind of like make it this big epic story. And it would have maybe given a little more weight to some of the things that they explored in Endgame. I like Endgame. I think it was a really good final episode. But I just did feel like for a lot of, a, really a lot of the run of the show, it was like, they don't seem to be ha- like that worried about being lost anymore. Well, no, I mean, I have to tell you, I, I thought Voyager was, was ill-conceived from the get-go in the sense that they should have been stuck there the whole time. They're, this idea of them getting home... I would rather have seen a show where they went to an unknown area of space and they tried to establish a Federation beachhead. Sure. You know, where they had to parlay between different civilizations and they had to create coalitions and do some world building and really, really, really show us, in in a way, the beginnings of the Federation in that part of the galaxy. And it would have been treacherous and dangerous and it would have been political and interesting. But this idea that they're trying to get home, I always hated that. I thought they missed it. And then Voyager, to me, was a show that was all about Star Trek tropes. Here we have the half-human, half-Klingon. Here oh, yeah. we have the holographic Doctor. You know, it was, it was all just – it was like Star Trek's greatest hits, and, and everything was a mishmash of what had come before, even the storylines. And when it, it all wasn't gelling – I liked the first season of Voyager, but the second season, yes. which begins with the 37s and a pickup truck in space, I'm like, oh, this is – this is gone. You know. <laughs> and then by the fourth season, like, okay, well, let's add eight, uh, Species 8472 or whatever and right. fluidic space and we'll bring on a Borg and it'll be awesome. Although she turned out to be one of the better characters, but it it, it was just seemed to be a copy of a copy of a copy. And I, I was never well, a big fan. Well, to be honest, that's what I thought was wrong with Enterprise because – that's where, as you just said about establishing a beachhead in the in the Delta Quadrant, I wanted to see humanity kind of – and we got it a little bit in the pilot where the mothers, the alien mothers with her little kid and trying to teach it how to breathe. And Trip is like, hey, what the hell are you doing to that kid? And, you know, uh, and I'm blanking on Jolene uh, Blaylock's uh, character's name. To Paul. Uh, to Paul, of course, is like, you know, hey. You don't know everything. This is a big, wide universe. And I would have liked to have seen a little more of, hey, guess what, Earthers? We've been around a lot longer than you. Why don't you take a seat and we'll tell you what's going on, as opposed to the always stroking the chin of, ah, these humans, they seem to possess equality, and, oh, there's real great you know, growth there. And it's like, yeah, we've, we, we danced to that tune already, man. Give us something different. And when they were constantly being boarded, <laughs> on Enterprise, it's like fuck again, and like you say, Tracy Torme. Thank God he comes in, and or not Manny Cotto, excuse me, Tracy Torme uh, sliders and yeah. Well, I mean, right? look, I just rewatched the fourth season of Enterprise. It's really good. Aside yes, it from is. the first episode, Stormfront, and the last episode, these are the Voyagers. Yeah, because we had alien Nazis again. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was so ridiculous. But I mean, I mean, you've got really the the Vulcan arc is really interesting. The, oh, the yeah. Augments arc is interesting. Interesting. The whole thing about Peter Weller's character coming on and being xenophobic. Yeah, Green? Wasn't he Colonel Green? Uh, well, he was an acolyte of Colonel Green's. Ah, even better. Yeah, he All believed right. in okay. Colonel Green and 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 also uh, in a mirror darkly is a lot of fun. Yes. You know, and there's a lot going on in the fourth season. I'm I'm sad 
you know, that it, 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 again, I worked on those Blu-rays as well, and we did some great documentary stuff on those, and, and it's really, the, the fourth season has a great uh, roundtable discussion with the Enterprise writers, and they talk about what might have been and what their frustrations were, and Ooh, I'm gonna have to see that. I because I, I have to confess I haven't bought those DVDs. My one of my best friends has it though, and I'm gonna have to like. Oh, the, the, again, we did some great documentaries and great special features for Enterprise. That's fantastic. No, I'm I'm, I'm definitely gonna like that. And Chase Masterson, did you ever hear her podcast before it went away? Uh, no, I never did. She, I forget what website it was, and it really maybe wasn't a podcast per se because it wasn't on iTunes. But she had some really great one-on-one interviews with a lot of the actors, and also uh, Brandon Braga came on and gave a very kind of, hey, sorry, we thought we were doing a good thing with these other voyages. And and I didn't, while I didn't disagree with that choice of uh, it being the final episode, and he un- he understood where the fans were coming from, and I and it was good to really hear somebody from, you know, the boss section come down and talk to the fans and be like, well, I understand. This is what we were thinking. And I've watched Rick Berman's kind of uh, interviews on the Archive of American Television. Uh, right. I don't know. If, you know, so it's, it is interesting to hear that stuff. But, yeah, Chase had a really interesting show. And, and it was during Enterprise. And during that whole, are they going to make it? Are they not going to make it? Is the fourth season going to be the last one? And just really great, great interviews. Great one with Takei. I mean, you know, a lot of people that you always give great well, interviews. Well, our so. fourth season. Seasons of Enterprise are the the Don Roger did my compatriot on Exeter because everybody's very very candid. That's excellent. Oh, I'm psyched, man. I, I definitely want to see that. Well, I hear I hear our uh, our, our signal kind of getting fuzzy again, so I want to give you a wrap up because sure. you've been you've been incredibly kind with your time. Oh, that's and I really great. do appreciate. It. Oh, that's great, man. And I and I and honestly, I I, I really appreciate it because I'm a huge fan of your work. Axonar is so worth getting behind, and if you're a Star Trek fan, I know you appreciated this conversation. And uh, again, the, the Collider Collider Heroes? Collider Heroes, right, I'm on that. And uh, go to SaveTheFederation.com or KlingonVictory.com. There's ten more days to contribute to Axanar. Absolutely, man. And no, let's get behind this project. And uh, Rob, I hope you'll come back. I know there's going to be excuses for you as the production of Axanar continues. So open invitation anytime you want to come back, and I'm going to bug you about it. I love it. I love talking with you. It's great. It's nice to meet a complete fellow geek. Man, that was terrific fun. Rob Meyer Burnett. Go to StarTrekAxanar.com for their website, but more importantly, you can go to their Indiegogo website as well. Support this thing. Like I said, there's 10 days left, and I hope you will go out there and uh, support this thing because it looks fantastic. Again, if you watch Prelude to Axanar or just go to the website, you're going to be blown away. I mean, just the effects look amazing, and it's the kind of Star Trek that we hope for with each movie, and I I think uh, these guys succeed because, as they said, these are pros that really do love Star Trek, and that kind of combination is uh, just the kind of thing that all of us fans want in every movie that we see. So uh, check out Star Trek Axanar and uh, help these guys out. Um, Also, uh, look for the uh, Collider Heroes uh, podcast. I'm going to start listening regularly because I love that Death of Superman Lives documentary. I know Rob is a great talker. I've seen him live at uh, San Diego and now having him on Word Balloon and stuff. So these are good, insightful people that I would love to hear talk more about the things we love. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Word Balloon. It was brought to you again by Cincy Comic Con, happening September 12th and 13th 
in uh, northern Kentucky, right across the river of Cincinnati, at the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. It's a great location. The hotels are right there. If you're driving, it's an easy drive. And if you're staying over, uh, the hotel rates are terrific and uh, literally right across the street from the convention center. It is such a great, on the one hand, laid back show, but it's my kind of convention because, as I've said before, there are the Hall H screaming woo conventions where, you know, it's just kind of, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so is on stage. And then there are the conventions that have these amazing panels that honestly are a lot like what I try to do on Word Balloon, where you're really sitting down and hearing about um, what this, what's on the creators' minds, how they make their projects, and the love that they have uh, for the things that they make, both their own creations and our favorite characters and licensed properties as well. And a great representation on all fronts when you think of this uh, guest list that Tony and Kara Moore have uh, cultivated. We're talking about people like Rick Remender, the great Marvel writer, but also his wonderful creator-owned books, uh, Deadly Class and Black Science. Uh, Fear Agent, of course, 10 years ago, Fear Agent happened. And Rick and Tony Moore and Mike Hawthorne are among those that are going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of Fear Agent. From Canada, Cameron Stewart is going to be there talking about his excellent creator on work like Sin Tutelo. And, of course, his excellent run on Batgirl. Brendan Fletcher, the Black Canary creator, is going to be there. Fables, if you're a big fan of the Vertigo series, Bill Willingham, Matt Sturgis, Chris Robertson, they're all going to be on a writer's panel talking about Fables. Of course, Chris will also like talk about iZombie, his uh, wonderful co-creation with Mike Allred. Uh, we're going to have God Hates Astronauts, Ryan Brown, Cursed Pirate Girl, Jeremy Bastion, Colin Bunn, who is writing half of the Marvel and DC Universe, Chris Burnham, who's been doing great work in the bad offices with Grant Morrison and with Grant Morrison on their own things like uh, Nameless from Image Comics, Sean Crystal, a wonderful artist who's been doing great work for DC and Marvel, Matthew Clark, an excellent Superman and Doom Patrol artist, uh, Adam Wither. There's in Comfort Love, Sean Dove, Ming Doyle, great, and I cannot wait to talk to Ming Doyle about The Kitchen, her wonderful Vertigo series, Sarah Dyer from Action Girl, Ray Fox, who has just been blowing it out of the water with great DC work, and now just blowing our minds with his writing and art in his Image sci-fi series. Like I said, Mike Hawthorne, Kyle Hoax is going to be there, Mark Kidwell, the great 68 zombie creator, uh, Kevin McGuire from Justice League International, Jim Food, Mike Maurice. Mike Norton, Phil Noto, Jeff Parker, my guy, from uh, his own creator own work to his runs on Aquaman and Batman 66, the goons Eric Powell, and more at Cincy Comic Con. I am very proud to be among those who will be moderating panels and uh, helping figure out the programming for the show. You're going to hear a lot of these panels on Word Balloon, but if you're in the tri-state area, you owe it to yourself to come to Cincy Comic Con happening September 12th and 13th at uh, the Northern Kentucky Convention Center. For more details, visit their website, CincyComicCon.com. Uh, you heard us talk a lot today about various DVDs and uh, books. If you want to help me out here at Word Balloon, uh, I do have an Amazon store. If you go to the front page of WordBalloon.com, there's a tab right there for the Amazon store. It's the same Amazon. Uh, there is no extra charge to you, but if you purchase anything going through my uh, website uh, and that portal to the Amazon store, then anything you make, I get a couple cents off of it. And I thank uh, those of you who have already shopped and done that. But uh, there's uh, great deals to be had uh, through Amazon. And if you make those purchases through the Word Balloon portal, uh, that's another way to help support the Word Balloon podcast. So uh, questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Um, I'll tell you the truth. We've got a lot of great guests already planned uh, really through September. 
I got to tell you, I've got my agenda kind of set um, because I made so many connections and want to capitalize on them uh, from San Diego and even things that I set up prior to San Diego that my calendar is pretty full for the month of August and really the first part of September because we're also going to be promoting Cincy Comic Con more uh, with some of these uh, creators that I mentioned. But that's good news for you, the Word Balloon listener, because uh, lots of A-listers are coming up in the weeks ahead and very excited to be talking to them for the first time. Uh, you know, it's funny, Jeff Loeb almost teased it on, on my last conversation uh, on Word Balloon. And uh, I've already got uh, some great people that are old favorites, but also people that have never been on Word Balloon f- before, waiting in the wings, uh, anxious to talk to you about uh, what they love about uh, the geek world. And it's a pleasure to bring these conversations to you each week, sometimes twice a week, sometimes even more than that. Um, I'm happy to do it, but it's to facilitate all these people with their projects and their schedule availability. So I don't want this stuff to sit on the shelf too long. Uh, It means you're going to get a lot more than four episodes a month uh, for the next uh, few weeks here on Word Balloon. And that's okay. I'm happy to do it. Uh, great conversation that I'm willing to share. So uh, stick around in a couple days. There's going to probably be another new episode. Uh, make sure you catch them, and you won't want to miss a minute of each segment of Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.